This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Morning. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here. Uh, your guide, your your guide on the side, your coach, <sighs> your friend. Along with Jeff and Terry, the gang is gathered. We're doing what we can today, folks. Uh, I'm telling you, I had a breeze of a drive in. Life was very good. It seems like they're clearing out some construction now. Oh, nice. I had a straight shot. Straight shot. I didn't have to run the gauntlet. I, I was, feel really good. Oh, I was waiting for a butt. No. Felt really good. And President Trump is in Asia. The Chinese are rolling out the... There's a state dinner going on Special as we speak. carpets. Uh, oh, is there? Yes. State dinner? Yeah. A fishless or a headless fish will be served? Possibly. They are Some taking... Some sort of grouper? I'm grouper? Kidding. I have no idea. Uh, they are taking really good care of the president, which I think is wonderful. And... Uh, isn't it a koi dinner? <laughs> it's a koi fish dinner out of a koi fish pond. That he, he fed it first. Yeah. You always want to fatten, yeah. yeah. It's like Kobe beef. Um, <laughs> it's koi beef. And uh, he, he's having a good visit. He, interestingly, I, I think I'm figuring out the president. It's This is a very important lesson I've learned. Really? Do you remember? I think you're the only one. No, well, no, yeah. You've well, cracked the code. I'm a highly trained professional. Here's the deal. Do you remember he was so mad about how China is taking advantage of America? Yes. And he, that was a big part of his election, is that we're going to fix that because we're tired of China taking care or taking or abusing us uh, and our, our policies. So now he's over there, and now he's saying, I'm not mad at China. Who's he mad at? Administrations. So here's the trick of Donald mm. Trump. Donald Trump's enemy is anybody that's not in the room. <laughs> Whoever is in the room with him is yeah. his friend. Anybody right, that's sure. not in the room is his enemy, even if it's his own country or his own past presidents. Anybody that's not in the room. And, and so it's actually, when you think about that, not a bad philosophy until you're in the room with the people you just right. dissed. So when they get up to go to the bathroom, that's when he can start the, yeah. the trash talk. He's the he's like the, he's the great aunt that talks about everybody. It'd be more effective <laughs> probably... 40 years ago when everything wasn't necessarily yeah. recorded to right. the same extent it is now cuz now everyone just knows. But what's so funny is it actually works because they are they don't they haven't rolled out the carpet like this for one of our presidents in a long time. No. This is like they're treating him like a Russian czar. So I was reading this article this morning it was saying in Japan they had him play golf with a Japan's top golf champion. They gave him a uh, Make America Great inspired hat. Yeah, those Talking are nice. about their alliance, uh-huh. make their alliance great. Uh, the the president there, or the uh, prime minister there, called him his favorite guy. Mm-hmm. In South Korea, the, the, they introduced him as the leader of the world. They had shouting children and colorful costume guards. Yeah. The president uh, of South Korea trip. was already making great progress on making America great again, is how he introduced really? the president. Wow. So praised him on his great progress his work already. There. Um, let's see, it goes on to China. It says a phalanx of soldiers were at attention, flags mm. waving children, yelling welcome, heads of stare to usually given low-key receptions at the airport, according to the AP. Not him. But real pomp and circumstance uh, reserved for arrivals at the Great Hall of People. So Trump got actually like two different 
welcomes. He goes to the Forbidden City. He had a private tour from the president of yeah. China. Yeah. See? So the Japanese golfer was, of course, told, you will lose this match. Right. Let him win. And so we will burn the stakes. They are, and, and Trump was clearly impressed by it's, all the attempts to flatter him. But see, so. it's working. So this is what's so funny. Back in the States, everybody's mad. Not everybody. Half the people are mad because they don't like his approach. Right. But his approach apparently works. The other side of it is they hold a press conference. Yeah. Usually what the past presidents would do is say, hey, when we hold a press conference, we have to take questions yeah. because we have a free yeah. press. That's how this works. Oh, he's loving this. And uh, China and, and uh. Uh, Trump agreed. We're not taking any questions. We're not taking any questions. And we won't take any political hostages or we won't take any Whoa. dissidents. We won't oh, okay. take anything. <laughs> wow. I, love how, I love how Brian Regan jokes about, I wish I would have known that was an option as a student growing up. Yeah. Oh, I'm not taking any questions today. <laughs> Wouldn't that be a good life? So he's... I really think there is. A, a, I'm going back to my old philosophy. There's some. There's some. Uh, what is it? I don't know. There's a pattern. There's to a his plan in the chaos. Craziness. Yeah. Hmm. We'll see. Well, I mean, the reality is, he'll come back, and then guess what he'll do? He'll blast China again. Right. Not get taxes passed. China's of- not in the country. Wherever he is, he'll blast the. Op- I mean, he'll blast the Pope. He already has, yeah. Right, until he wants to, until he's visiting the Pope. Yeah, and then he's all friends. It's like, we're good friends. Not not as confusing as I thought it was at first. We got a great show, but first let's get to the headlines. Uh, Terry's going to enlighten us about the news. The the, the, uh, Justice Department told AT&T that it should sell Turner Broadcasting, which oversees CNN before it will approve the company's pending $85 billion deal with Time Warner. The New York Times reported this on Wednesday. The merger could also reportedly be approved if AT&T sells DirecTV. Mm. AT&T CEO Randall Stevenson said later Wednesday that he has never offered to sell CNN and there is no intention of doing so. The Justice Department is assessing antitrust concerns surrounding the deal, which would create a giant media and telecommunications company. President Donald Trump lashed out, has lashed out at CNN. I don't know if you've noticed yeah, him doing I, I, this. I think he's, yeah, I've heard pick Throughout up his presidency for what he calls their biased reporting on his administration, which has led some to think, like, is this the Trump administration telling the Department of Justice to, let's go after CNN? Or No, but th- this is the Department of Justice. Sure. This is Mr. Beauregard Sessions. Right. He's not going Jefferson. to... He's not going to... Do, do exactly something. what President Trump asks yeah, him to do at a no. di- They had lunch like three days before Trump went to China last week. That would be crazy. <clears throat> yeah. So, I mean, there's there's th- theories that way. There's now a he said, she said, or actually it's a he said, he sh- said situation yeah. where the DOJ is saying that actually the AT&T guy offered to sell CNN and AT&T saying they told us. And so it's really, it's really kind of strange. So they basically works. have to get to get the AT&T deal through. They have to either sell. CNN or DirecTV? Maybe, maybe not. It, that's the thing is even those comments now are in question okay. on who said what, when, and this was a meeting that happened yeah. over the last couple of days. Uh, this will probably all end up in court. Oh, good. Just to sum that up. We up. haven't had something in court right. for days. And it's $85 billion and whether you can watch TV with your phone, I guess, is how that all works. Okay. Yeah. The House Republicans' back tax plan released last week would add $1.7 trillion to the deficit over the next decade, according to a new review by the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office who the Republicans feel are very partisan. Oh, yeah. I added that last part. Uh, $1.7 trillion? $1.7 trillion. You know, it's chump change, right? Uh, ABC News says the plan adds $1.4 trillion to, that de- to the deficit, but the figure goes up to $1.7 
$1.7 trillion with interest. You always forget to add the yeah. interest. Uh, which put the review together in response to a request for information uh, from Rep- Representative Richard Neal, a Democrat, on the House Ways and Means Committee. Republicans have said the plan will spur economic growth, which the study did not take into account because you can't, yeah. you can't predict what's going to happen to the economy. Right. Republicans are aiming to pass the bill at a committee this week uh, by Thanksgiving, and the Senate is working on its own version of the bill. Which may be completely different, so all of this will be for naught. But, but if you look at one, I don't like to look at it as one point seven oh, trillion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. I like to look at it as, as like thirty small installments. Yeah, there of a hundred billion each. That's how you pay for your cell over, phone. Yeah. yeah. Don't forget years. the shipping and handling too. Oh yeah, those can uh, add up. And then make sure you check when it's going to arrive. You don't want it to arrive after Christmas. The tax plan that is. Breaking news out of the Kremlin. What? Russian President Vladimir Putin and President Trump are currently setting up their next meeting will be on Friday at an economic summit in (gasps) Vietnam. Really? This according to the Kremlin. Now, uh, oh, so we didn't know about that? No, this the Kremlin released when the president's meeting with Putin. Yeah, yeah. Seems like you'd want to be the first to announce that. Maybe. I mean, just if you're being investigated for Russian collusion. I don't know. Okay. It just that came out of the Kremlin okay. this morning. Breaking uh, news. With every hotel in Puerto Rico at capacity, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, is trying something new, flying displaced Puerto Ricans to the mainland in the U.S. where they will live in temporary housing in New York and Florida. The island is still reeling from Hurricane Maria with residents across Puerto Rico living without power and clean water. Through FEMA's Transition Shelter Assistance Program, displaced Puerto Ricans living in shelters will be flown to the mainland. Their plane tickets and housing costs covered by FEMA. This is FEMA's first time doing an airlift following a natural disaster. It typically pays for people who can't be in their homes to stay in hotels. Mm. Mike Breen, a federal coordinating officer of FEMA, told CBS News out of 300 families who have been offered assistance, 30 have have actually accepted the offer, so not everyone wants to leave the island. They don't want to leave their homes. He says thousands of Puerto Ricans have already left their island, the island on their own, with 100,000 already settling in Florida. Well, yeah, that's sad. So everything's going great. No, yeah, it's going As we heard, it's going great. Uh, We're just going to bring a bunch of them over. A perfect 10. Just give them a place to stay. Perfect 10 on the recovery. Okay. I don't remember us doing that with other recoveries. No, but it is an island in the middle of a big ocean. A huge ocean. And uh, they may not have power till maybe Christmas. Oh, those if, poor If they're people. lucky. Yeah. But you know what? Hmm? They did release a new iPhone. They did? <gasps> so whatever's going on in Puerto Rico, that should it's fine. trump it. Uh, uh, allegedly. And finally, it looks like America won't be getting its own army of space marines after all. At least uh. not this year. CNN- oh! That's right. We, we want space we marines. We want space marines. <laughs> CNN reports Congress has dropped the proposal to create a new space corps, similar to the Marine Corps, but spacier, from the final version of the $692 billion National Defense Authorization Act. According to the Hill website, the uh, proposal described the duties of the space corps as deterring aggression in, from, and through space and providing combat-ready space forces, among space other corps. things. Well, the uh, space corps, supported by leaders of the House Armed Services Committee, but opposed by the White House and Pentagon was dropped. The uh, final bill did call for further study of the idea. We will not allow the United States National Security Space Enterprise to continue to drift towards a space Pearl Harbor, pro-space core lawmakers said in a statement Wednesday. <laughs> yeah, you don't want like some like last second space attack. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. Now, if 
we could probably repel a space attack from another country on this planet. We could take on any country. But if there here. was a force from, say, another planet who had yeah. the technology to get to our planet, like demagogues, could we do anything? They're from mm. they're from a different dimension, not a different planet. Just an, I know, but it's just the only spacey word, weird thing I've ever learned gotcha. in the last. If you want to see one, just you know, turn yourself upside down. Yeah, just flip. Yeah, see, I don't understand what that meant. That's kind of weird. But uh, I don't think we really could do anything against aliens, so. But unless we had Space Corps. Right. Come on, just get Jeff Goldblum and Will and, Smith. And okay, really, they're they're give them a virus. They're when, actors. When I think of Space Corps, I think of uh, there's a James Bond movie, Moonraker. Yes. That looks ridiculous as people are out there floating in their spacesuits shooting lasers that don't exist. Well, they did in the movie. Right. You've got to let your imagination go a little bit. Well, that one was hard because it looked, you know, ridiculous. Speaking of ridiculous... Hey, we just lost a Bond girl. Speaking of oh, we did? Bond movies, yeah. Who? The Bond girl from You Only Live Twice. She died. She was 79 years old. All you, right. She, you Only Live Twice? She only lived once, apparently. Mm. Well, may she rest in peace. Yeah. Until she comes back. What was her name? Do you remember? I'll have to look it up. Okay. I'm glad you brought us up to date on that. Um, I didn't, because really, there's a Bond girl that could be yeah. passing every year. Sure. Because Bond's put out so many movies. That's too bad. Uh, tra- another tragedy. Nutella fans are freaking Karen, out. Karen Dorr. Karen Dorr. All right. There's just a lot to work with there. Karen Dorr, uh, Bond girl from You Only Live Twice, passed away. This is the film that Sean Connery, he took a break for one film, and then that's the one that George Lazenby did, the Australian guy. Then he came back and did one more, You Only Live Twice. Straight from the James Bond, uh, all you can know about Bond book. Having said that, he actually did one more that was not part of the Bond canon. Okay. That's I'm done. That's your Bond update for the day. Sorry, back to the Nutella. Nutella fans are freaking out over a recipe change, folks. Yes, they are changing the recipe of Nutella. They already did. They didn't tell anybody. Those, Those monsters. Dirty monsters. It's part of the problem. This is why we need a space corps. Uh, Nutella said in a post on its German Facebook page on Tuesday that it was fine-tuning its recipe – How do you fine-tune perfection? Well, you add more powdered milk and spread the sugar content uh, and increase the spread's sugar content. So the sugar went up from 55.9% to 56.3%. By the way, total victory. The skim milk milk powder went from 7.5 to 8.7. Which, let's let's talk in non-technical terms, they're watering down the Nutella. With powdered milk. So, on the website Mashable.com, they report that that probably caused some cocoa to be lost in the new recipe, which would explain why the new version is slightly lighter in color. Ah. This is going to backlash. There's going to be a huge backlash. Oh, yeah. But the fat content went from 31% to 30.9%. Ooh, that's another thing that people are not going to like. It went down? Yes. What are they doing? <laughs> well, they increased the skim milk. I'm glad the sugar went up. The Mi- sugar went up and the skim milk went up, 
but the fat content went down. Yes. Nutella is one of the signs that you've kind of given up in life. No, and people are okay with that. This is the sign, and it came from my college student son. He said, Dad, I found a great breakfast. It involves nuts. like So like I'm like, peanut butter? And he's mm. like, kind of, and just bread. And I'm like, like, wheat bread, whole wheat bread? And he's like, mm. kind of. But no, it's white bread with Nutella on it. Yeah, That is the breakfast of champions yeah. right there. You know what? We used to call that, I think, a ho-ho. Yeah. Yeah, isn't that dessert? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <sighs> oh, it's it's, he- it's healthy. It says it right on the uh, But these right the are hazelnuts, here. right? Mm-hmm. Hazelnuts. Which, by the name, by the way, a great name from the 50s. Um, I went to a play last night oh. and uh, learned a lot about Perry Como. Whenever you get culture, yeah, it's it's a little little scary. So go ahead. It's a lot scary. Mm. But boy, did they! And I went with my mom, and she sang every song. So from, Perry Perry well, Como, the Italian, or he's I'm sure he's got Italian in his family. So you were just connecting with your roots. Yeah, yeah. Newly found. Yeah, but oh, always known. Mm, really? Just yeah. because you like say spaghetti? Yeah, and pizza. You're like, There's a reason. My I like favorite that. meal. This this is why. My favorite meal is lasagna. Mm. Lasagna. Right. There you go. I don't know if that's how you say it. But, but it feels right, doesn't it? Totally it totally feels right. Yeah. It must and be genetic. When, let me just tell you. When somebody is 7% <laughs> okay. Italian slash Greek, mm. you Can know. Can you just say Mediterranean? No. It kind of encompasses no, that whole region. No. Not really? Okay. Mm. Go ahead. But I've always known that I had a little bit of. My my motherland. In Did me. you feel any connection with the Mario brothers? A little bit. Did you? Luigi, especially. Mm. So, would you consider yourself Italian? I don't know if I'm Italian or Greek. Okay, because I was just going to say, if I were a professional baseball player uh-huh. and yes. I only got a hit seven percent of the time, I wouldn't be a professional baseball player. Yeah. Well, well I don't know what that has to do with well, my. Well, you'd be hitting seven hundred. You, you would. No, 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 7%. 700 oh, seven. is 70%. Gotcha, 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 so gotcha. you but, would but, not be an Italian. Hold it. But I'm still hitting 28% Scandinavian <laughs> and 20% uh, British. See, now 28%, that would be a 280, 280. batting average. So, yeah, yeah, you'd be a Scandinavian. But here's the deal. Average. That, but but that little bit of that little bit of not Greek, an award winning. But it's you're not. You're a below average. Yeah. I've actually two eighties. You're, you're a journeyman. You're one of those guys that stick right in the middle of the batting order. Just yeah, well, they have to put you somewhere because you're good in the outfield. Solid as a rock. <laughs> Why are you laughing? I'm sorry. Anyway, um, I digress, and I don't know why that came up during our Nutella discussion. Mm. By but the way, speaking good, of good, good to good to know. My roots. Solid as a rock. Yeah. Arrested Development. Jeffrey Tambor, who yeah. played the patriarch well, of that on. family. Why on... are we talking about this? Because he's the the newest target in these sexual harassment Boy, allegations. There, there's a lot, aren't there? They're, they're going after one everybody. By one by one. But you know what? Honestly, if these are all true, this is something we need to be talking about. Right? I mean, even if half of them are true, this is – there's been a lot of abuse. It's tough stuff. <sighs> Let's get to a happier subject. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna be visiting an interview, probably one of my favorite interviews of all time. 
a friend of mine, a veteran, will be uh, will will be replaying an interview I did with him about his tour in Vietnam. And boy, oh boy, it's incredible the stories. These are the stories I heard as a Boy Scout. And uh, it made me realize how lucky we are to live in America. This is the Matt Townsend Show, getting you ready for Veterans Day for this, uh, this weekend. How better to do it than actually talking to a veteran? That's up next. This weekend is Veterans Day. It is a day uh, that America remembers the soldiers who have served our country. If there's anyone who knows this uh, and that about that experience firsthand, it's my friend T. Herschel. He served as a medic in Vietnam and, unfortunately, all too often, was the last person to look into the eyes of a critically injured soldier as they left this world. Uh, a couple of years ago, he sat down and talked with me about his experiences. We begin the interview about his childhood and the events leading up to the beginning of the Vietnam War. I grew up in a, in a patriotic home. My dad didn't serve because his age was between things. He was too young for World War II and too old for Korea. Mm. So we didn't ever serve in the military, but like the 4th of July was the biggest holiday for us. We celebrated that in a big way, and he taught us to respect the flag and love our country, and so that's the way I was reared. Neat. I got into high school, and by then we were, we were full bore in Vietnam. Uh, November 1965, I, I think I've got my dates right. November 65, President Johnson sent the 1st Infantry Division on a, on a huge ship, sent him into, uh, into probably Cameron Bay. Mm. And that was the first official um, combat unit that was in Vietnam. Prior to that, we were you know, advisors, whatever that right. meant. Visitors. And, and it, it's, it's interesting to me that that 1st unit was the 1st Infantry Division because that's the unit I ended up being assigned to when I got there. So this was in the end of 65, and six or seven months later, in June of 66, I graduated from high school. I immediately enrolled at the University of Utah. And back then, this, this was before the lottery. Hmm. So the law was you registered for the draft at 18, and when you were 19, you got drafted. It wasn't a matter of, you know, my, my, my number was drawn way into the series, so I'm safe. Yeah. When you were 19, you got your letter. However... You could get a deferment for a lot of things. If you were 4F and physically unfit, you you didn't have to go. Uh, if you were 1S, which I think meant you were 18 years old and you'd registered, but you were still in high school, so you were safe then. Or if you were a sole surviving son or you had a job that was critical to the community, those are all things for which you could get a deferment. One of the deferments, called a 2S deferment, was you were enrolled in a college program and you had a, a specific number of hours and you had good grades. And I, I had that. I had really good grades. You were shooting for that. Yeah. <laughs> but I had these really good grades. And I, I think I could have set out the war. I think I probably could have done just fine, just keep registering and get my education and be safe. Oh, wow. But my heart wouldn't let me do that. Interesting. I had a bunch of friends that I graduated with that had, had listed right after, right out of high school, guys that I'd, you know, I'd known since the fourth grade. And we had this little newsletter that came out in our community every week that talked about had pictures of all these guys that were serving that had been either wounded or killed. So I, I'm seeing pictures of my friends that lost an arm or lost a leg or too often lost their lives because they were over there fighting for my freedom and I wasn't. Mm -hmm. And after my first year, I finished my freshman year and I just couldn't deal with it anymore. So before it came time to sign up for my sophomore year, I went down and visited with the recruiter and oh, I got wow. him to make me two promises. He promised me that I could be trained as a medical corpsman. And he promised me that I could go to Vietnam. So I signed up, and in uh, September of 60, 
seven. I went to Fort Lewis, Washington for my basic training, and uh-huh. then after that down to Fort Sam Houston, Texas for medical training. And in February of 68, I think the specific day was the 25th, I landed. We were on a World Airways jet out of Oakland, California, and we landed at Quinion Airfield in uh-huh. Vietnam. It was right in the middle of the Tet Offensive, oh my word. which was the biggest offensive yeah. of the war. They were celebrating the Chinese New Year or something like that, and the buildup was huge and more casualties than at any other time in the war. That's when we landed, and we actually took fire as we were, <laughs> as we were getting off the jet. Welcome, welcome. to Vietnam. So, that, yeah, that was my welcome. You know, I was kind of hoping for one of those Hawaii lays. In the yeah, kids, you didn't the get a Hawaii morning, lay. You know, but I, I didn't get any of that. So I, I got my assignment, ended up with the 1st Infantry Division, 1st Battalion, 26th Infantry, Bravo Company, November Platoon, and uh, I was ready to go. Hmm. So I, I, I got my first Eagle flight. I, I went in, and, and I was given all of my equipment, a bag to carry stuff in, and I filled it up with bandages and salt tablets and antibiotics and morphine and, and uh, hemostats and scalpels, all the stuff I might need as I got out there and had to take patch people up and take care of their lives. I got my M16, which I didn't keep for very long. <laughs> but I went out with the rest of my troop for an Eagle flight. Now, what an Eagle flight is was the means of transportation to get us from one place to another in the jungle. And basically what it was is we'd go out to a, a bunch of cement pads. As I recall, there were six or eight of them. And we'd stand on one of those landing pads and helicopters would come in. You could look up in the sky and you'd hear the, you know, the beep, beep, beep yeah. of the rotors, see these helicopters coming in and a Huey would come down and hover about a foot off the ground and four or five of us would jump in it. It'd take off and then the next one would come in and four wow. or five people would jump in it. And that's how we got to where we were going. I was on this, this Huey with... Four other guys, five of us, plus the pilot, the crew chief, and the door gunner. So there were, what, eight of us on there. And I didn't know where we were going. I was, you know, I was high enough to have a need to know. (laughs) greenie. Yeah, I was, (laughs) even after I wasn't green, I still didn't, it wasn't important enough to know. What I did know was that it would take us about half an hour to get to wherever we were going, and I knew that it was a hot LZ. Now, LZ means landing zone, and hot means... There's combat going on there. That's the reason we're going out was to reinforce the troops that were in the middle of a firefight. So the the likelihood, the probability was like near one that when we got at the other end, people were going to be shooting at us. Were you terrified or at what? At first I was, I, I was terrified. I was. I was shaking. I could, you know, I'm remembering it still. And I could barely hold still in my seat. I just wanted to get oh out. Oh, my word. Uh, I, was, I was 19 years old. First yeah. time I'd ever been away from home. And, uh, and, and I remembered what we were taught in in our basic training. Now, I don't know if it was true, because these drill instructors would tell us all kinds of stuff to motivate us. <laughs> yeah. But I remember one drill instructor when we were in our jungle training after I finished my Fort Sam Houston medical stuff. He said, if you're going into a hot LZ, you got an 80% mortality statistic. 80% of you are going to be dead. Again, I don't know if that was true or not. Oh, my word. But I can tell you I believed it. Yeah, for sure. And I was looking at these other four guys. There were five of us that were going to get off at the other end. And... You know, I hadn't known him for a long time, a couple of them a day or two. A few of them went through training together, so I'd known him for six months. But there's something about the war that causes these instant friendships. And I, I really cared for these guys. And I sat there thinking, in, in half an hour, these four friends of mine are going to be dead. Wow. And then I had this thought that kind of reached down and grabbed my heart and stood me up. You know, maybe it'll be me. And that's when I really started to to be terrified, I guess. Yeah. And I started to think about my life. You know, you hear about your life flashing. Yeah. It did. I, I remember it all the way back. And, and, and I, what I really remembered that surprised me 
was I had taken in school, I had taken a lot of religious training, seminary we called it, and I'd learned a lot of scriptures. And the way I remembered that experience was I'd read the scripture because I had to, and I'd pass the test, and then I'd forget about it. Well, suddenly I was remembering all these scriptures. Oh, wow. And one of them that came to me was in Matthew, I think the 10th chapter, and it, it talks about don't fear who can destroy the body. Be afraid of he who can destroy the body and soul in hell. And once I thought about that, it it was like this peace came over me. And and I I, I was no longer, it wasn't like I didn't think I was going to die. It was like it didn't matter. I knew that I was there for a good purpose. I was doing the right thing. And I I realized that I tried my whole life to live the way I should have. And I was more successful than less successful. And I just wasn't worried anymore. So we got to the other end, and the helicopters went down to ground level, two or three feet off the ground. And the idea was you stand up in a doorway, and you jump out, and then the next guy jumps out. And as soon as the helicopter's empty, it takes off. Well, I, st- I was the second one standing in a doorway, and the guy in front of me was this huge guy, six foot four and like four feet across. And <clears throat> as soon as he stood up, he took a, a round in his forehead uh. and fell forward. And I just reflexively grabbed him, and the weight of his body pulled us both out of the helicopter. And the chopper lurched up a few feet, and it was hit by an incendiary round, and it exploded. Oh, my and, and, word. And everybody died. And I realized in, in that second that I was the statistic. I was the 20%. You're it. You, know, it really, you made really the first round. The rest of them were gone, and, and I was there. Wow. So that was my introduction to Vietnam, and over the next 18 months, that experience with variations here and there was repeated over and over. We're talking to a friend of mine, Terry Herschel, who was a medic during the Vietnam War. Now, I had an M-16 when I first got there. And after about a week, I think, I I killed somebody. And I still, I remember it. I remember it in slow motion. Mm -hmm. And and I was behind him and I shot off. I saw the back of his head come off and he was a kid, Mm. a little boy, you know, maybe 15 and he, I knew he's got a mom and dad at home and, and brothers and sisters that look up to him and they'll never see him again. And it's because of me. And it, it, it tore me to pieces. Uh, I, I'm still emotional 44 years later. So uh, I, I got rid of my M16 because medics didn't have to carry him. And that allowed me to carry twice as much in terms of medical yeah. stuff. So for the rest of the time, I did what you just said. I, I, I hang, hang out with the boys. I didn't need a gun because they protected me. Yeah. And when somebody was wounded, I'd stop and I'd patch them up and call in the dust-off helicopters to take them back to the hospital and move on to the next one. Oh, my word. Well, and what a move to give up your gun. I mean, I guess it it was for you, wasn't it? It's just easier. To, it might be easier to die than uh, to have I to had, take another one. I had no trouble at all giving up that weapon. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I bet it was just peace. And, I, and, and I'll tell you, I, when I took that life, it, it happened, that happened twice. The, the second time was, was with a knife, but I'll, I'll probably talk about that because it had an impact on, on my life and the way I thought. But when I took that life, the, the feelings that I had were overwhelming, and, and I couldn't believe that I, I did that. I didn't yeah. feel guilty because of the circumstances, but I was appalled at what human beings do to each other. And what really bothered me even more than that was the dehumanizing effect that the war had on so many people, friends yeah. of mine. There were great guys in every respect, except that killing didn't bother them. As a matter of fact, they were proud of it. They keep a body count, and they'd make little marks on the stock of their of their weapons to keep track of how many people they killed. And I, I, I could not 
I still can't fathom. Yeah, what is that? You know, I well, can't even shoot a deer anymore. Because so. we have, we're sending all these men into war and women into war, and we don't, we don't quite think of that, do we? We don't. We don't. And you know what? So many people think of is they're the enemy, and and they're right. Yeah, they're the enemy. But why are they there? They're there for the same reason I was. They believe in a cause. They believe in their country. They have family. They love people. Yeah. They love their kids. They love their parents. They want to try and protect them. Mm-hmm. Whether or not their cause is right, that's for the right. other people to argue about. But he's just like me. And yeah. yeah, it was either him or me, But and I'm and I'm glad it ended up to be him. But another part of me is very, very sad. Now, there's a cost, isn't there? There's a very... A very profound cost, and it doesn't go away. That's what. That's true. That's what we're seeing is, is they're all coming back with PTSD and yeah, that's right, post traumatic stress disorder. I mean, it's it's you made it through. I mean, that, that, there's day one, and then you gave your gun up. How soon? A week later? About a week later, you're yeah. giving your gun up. Yeah. So within a week, you're already having to take a life. That's right. And about three days after that, I received my first wound. Oh my word! And right. this was a really interesting one because. I don't know if it was a bullet or, or a piece of shrapnel because we never found it, but it came in the front of my helmet, and it came on an angle so it was deflected, and, and this was just a remarkable thing. It's impossible for this to have happened, but it did. It it penetrated my skin, but it didn't penetrate the skull, and it was deflected and went all the way around the left side of my head and came out the back and came out through the helmet. So if you took the helmet, you saw a hole in the front and a hole in the back. Holy cow. It's you, thought, like you should have had a, a so, man, this guy, this guy bought the farm, but the fact was I didn't even take out a lease on the farm. I, I had a terrible migraine for a few I days and some bleeding that I treated myself. And on the left side of my head, my hair all fell out, and it took you know a few weeks for it to grow back. But that was it. I mean, wow. <laughs> so that was the first wound that I received. So you're, and, and that was three days in. It was about eight days. In. It was eight three days, days after after the, I turned in my weapon. Oh my word! Yeah, incredible. Um, so then there was an, uh, the, the second time I was wounded, and this was this was a long time later. I mean, I, maybe it was the last time I was wounded. I was wounded three times. This was probably the third time because it was months, months later. Um, I was we were in a firefight, and I stopped and was kneeling down, taking care of our wounded, and. It, this, it wasn't like the movies you see of World War II where there's a definite front. We were in the jungle. Yeah, you were and, everywhere. And I might be here, and there's some enemy over there on the other side of them. There's some more of our guys. We're just all mixing it up together. So I was on my knees treating this wounded GI, and I, I heard the bush crack behind me, and I turned around, and I saw a VC, a Viet Cong. And he had his rifle, and he was running at me. It turned out the rifle was a little sawed-off 410-gauge shotgun. Oh, my word. And I grabbed the barrel of it to pull it away from him. And I, in the process of doing that, I pulled the barrel down into my thigh and it went off. I got a big hole about the size of a quarter in my left thigh. And it, but it didn't hit any blood vessels and it didn't hit any bones. And I still have all of the, all of the, uh, all of the, or the shot, shot, bird shot in there. And every time I have my knees x-rayed, you know. They're like, look at your leg. I have to explain what happened. Holy cow. So anyway, I threw the weapon away, and he came at me with a knife, and it was it was a long knife. I wrestled it away, and I— I mean, you're a big—you're not big, but I, you're bigger than I was a, a lot Viet bigger Cong. Than, a lot bigger than a Viet Cong, and he was, again, was a, was a young boy. Oh, man. I wrestled the knife away, and I, I pinned him to the ground through his throat, and in the process, it— severed his jugular vein and his carotid artery. And I think it may have nicked his spinal cord too, but that didn't matter because with both of those blood vessels in, he was uh, dead. in, in moments, he exsanguinated and was gone. And, and, and again, I had the same thoughts. 
Wow. You know, I, I thought about his mom and dad at home, and they're never going to see him again. Yeah. It, it, that part of Vietnam was just a killer for me. I'm glad I only had to experience that twice. We're talking to a friend of mine, Terry Herschel, who was a medic during the Vietnam War. He shared with me the pain he felt when a close friend was killed and how or even if a soldier can say goodbye. In the moment, you don't. You just don't have a chance. There's just too much, too much happening, too much going on. And people have often asked me, were you, were you afraid? And the answer that I can say is not because of any bravery on my part. I, I was never afraid when we were in a firefight. You had a job to do, and you did it. You were busy. You, you just went about the tasks that had to be done, and you did them. Leading up to it in anticipation or thinking about it afterwards, yeah. there was plenty of time to be afraid, and I was a lot. Yeah. And in answer to your question, after the firefight was over, after we'd sent what was left of his body back, um, I had time to think about it. And again, it's been 44 years, but I believe I remember weeping. Mm. Uh, thinking about about him, and, and even more than that, thinking about his bride that he'd married, I, I think, a week before he came, and, and he was gone now. And that, that was very heart-wrenching for me. We don't get it, do we? we yeah. It's, we don't it's get true. what you've all been through. It's true. Powerful. Uh, a few years later, a few years ago, I, I went to uh, Washington to the Vietnam Wall, which was a, a profoundly moving experience I for bet. me. And, and I went and I looked up all of the guys that I knew that I had fought with yeah. and many of whom had died in my arms. Yeah. And I took, I took uh, what do you call them? Like, oh, rubbings, like the rubbings. Rubbings of their names. Yeah. And I've, I've got those in a scrapbook somewhere. But I, I, I specifically looked up Stephen. Was it, it seems like medic is, a, a, it's like a chaplain almost. It's kind of an honorable, I mean, you're there at a very private, personal time. They're battling to live. And I mean, I'm sure you're just saving their lives. But to know that they're dying in your arms, what's yeah. that like? Um, what do you say? What do you do in that moment? You, you, I don't know. <laughs> you just, I, I, I don't know how to answer that. You, you just you just hold them and treat them and, and wipe their their brow off and, and wait for, it, for them to pass. Mm. Um, That's an honor. I, f- I felt very honored to have that opportunity. You know, yeah. they, they, they called me Doc. Uh, a lot of them didn't even know my name. So, <laughs> You're just the redheaded and Doc. I, and I was glad because, you know, <laughs> I didn't want people to call me Terry. Right. Uh, but uh, it turns out that I didn't need the weapon because, you know, if I wanted a moment of privacy too bad, I, 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 I they wouldn't let me go anywhere without someone. Right. They're going to have Watch someone. me and take care of me. And, and I, felt, I felt honored by that. That's great. I was glad I had the opportunity to serve in that. Uh, T. Herschel is his name, and uh, truly a hero to me, one of the greats, uh, I truly believe. And the reason I wanted to replay that interview with T. Herschel is let's be very, very real about what these soldiers have done and what they're still doing over in Afghanistan, in Iraq. Um, especially Vietnam, didn't they didn't get the welcome home. They didn't get the praise from people. Um, and they uh, they didn't get they didn't get maybe the recognition they need. So why don't we give it to them now by celebrating and honoring them this Veterans Day this weekend? When you see somebody that served, uh, no matter where they've served in the military, get out there and uh, thank them for and and show them your appreciation for what they've given and been willing to give to this country. Uh, Up next, we'll continue the journey, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Our goal is to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier lives. 
and especially this weekend to help you get prepared to truly uh, thank your, uh, your God above for the great blessings of living in such a wonderful country. Welcome back, friends. You know, there's nothing more constant than change, and uh, it seems like there's been nothing more constant in the tech world than the change of emojis. Yes, there was a, uh, what was it, Google last week had a thing about, they had a hamburger emoji, and people were fighting over, in the emoji, should the cheese be on top of the meat or under the meat? Oh, well, it depends on if you have multiple patties. There's just one patty in the emoji. Ah. You still put it on top, right? Of course. I mean, that's like an American. You need it to melt around and give that meat patty a big cheesy hug. Then, of course, because they're a fun company, they had a barbecue for all the employees, and they had both burgers, and they were trying to see which burger would be... Yeah. You know, eaten the more of. Do we know which one? Won? I don't know what the outcome of that scientific study was. Here we barbecued, yeah. and then people ate more hamburgers with cheese on top of them. Yeah. You know. Have you but, ever decided? But if you just flip the burger, flip, flip it, it over, over it's, it's the same thing. Okay, just check it. But that's a study I'd I'd love to be a part of. <laughs> we don't ever have studies like that on campus. Well, here. Kiko offered to do some cooking for you on the show, and you turned him down. This is true. Yeah, but it's poi. Yeah. Poi with like a spam. Yeah, poi spam mixture. Yeah, I don't know. Not the same. So uh, Apple put out their uh, data that they have because, you know, they can look at what you're doing on your phone to a certain extent. There's some information they receive. And they, uh, the most popular emoji. Yeah. What do you think it is? Well, uh, I'm sure just the smiley face. No. How about the smiley face, squinted eyes? Happy, so happy, your squinting face. Thumbs up? No. High most five. popular Heart. emoji Heart. is, no, face with tears of joy. Yeah, I was going to say that. <laughs> right there. That's the most popular one. Really? Yeah. So you got the is smiley that, face. Hold on, is that what that means? I thought you were laughing so hard you were crying. What's what I mean? Tears of joy. You're crying because it's funny. Oh. Tears of joy. I thought that well, tears of joy to me means... You have this pleasant, joyful feeling, not yeah. necessarily laughing, but mm, there's no, tears. What no. if that person has a tear duct issue? Yeah. What if you just what yeah, what if you just so got says pink the, eye? The figure is stuck between sobbing and laughing and is equally perfect for expressing the soaring highs of life and the depressing lows of life. Huh. Really? Don't use said. that emoji on Facebook whenever somebody shares the info that somebody in their family died. Yeah, don't use that one. Yeah. Yeah. People think that's just Tears you know, of joy. Sad tear, but no. He's this is smiling. the problem with emojis is yeah. you don't always know what they mean. My wife was complaining the other night that someone sent out some message to her, and she's like, I'm not sure what this means. These emojis don't really. They don't talk to me. Yeah. So it's the most popular emoji among English-speaking iOS and Mac users in the U.S., according to Apple, which published a chart showing the top emoji uses on all its devices. The reveal comes from a somewhat unexpected place, an overview about how Apple collects on a data user data and analytics in iOS, which people start, you know, getting concerned about their privacy. In this case, figuring out which emoji users uh, type the most can help the company better or suggest better for their in their use because it gives you that predictive yeah, yeah. Uh, data as you're typing. 
So they're saying that we can use this data as people, all the people are using it, and we can suggest emojis and all kinds of stuff. But uh, so it's not just Apple singing the praises of faces um, or face with tears of joy, though. Other emoji tracking metrics like the site Emoji Tracker, which <laughs> monitors real-time emoji use across Twitter, has the uh, humble emoji as the number one position across the entire social media site by a fairly massive margin. So Wow. If you know what that is. That's no. the other thing. All these emojis have names. And yeah. I'm like, I don't know what they are. But we should have seen the emoji movie, I guess. Oh, interesting. So according to Apple, these are the top emojis. Hearts. So the heart's number two. The crying face is three. Heart eyes is four. Heart kiss is five. <laughs> these are my definitions, by the way. Yeah. Weird eyes, like looking up, is six. And then skull is, is seven. So mm, there, there is an. Em- I don't use many of those. There is an emoji consortium. I'm not sure if that's the exact name of it, yeah. but it's a international body that governs emojis. <laughs> how they're when you like defined, to look at those I guys. Guess. I bet they look funny. And they get there's a lot of fights out there they're because all... people want their emojis to be specific. Yeah, so. and they had to have a taco one because yeah. they had yeah. You got to do it. Uh, so there you go. Tears or face? What is it officially? Face with tears of joy is the number one. Wouldn't it be? Faster to just write in one or two words what you're trying to say instead of like yeah. file like yeah. trying to go through all yeah. these different emotions. Laughing my eyes out. Yeah. Or what have you. Tears of joy. I think it's the uh the codified language if you mm-hmm. if you know then you know type of concept that people like about it. So yeah. Yeah. I find it confusing, but maybe that's it's, my uh age it, group it, yeah, screaming at the yeah. uh, situation. And it's your age group that's causing all this mayhem. Could be. Uh, up next, we're going to be doing a, a, just a little love story for you. Uh, a former Navy SEAL gets in a car accident. We're going to talk about uh, how his wife is slowly bringing him back to life and to health. A great love story straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us on BYU Radio. If you don't believe in love, then you've got to hear this story. Um, we'll post uh, a link to their um, their Instagram feed. But the story is about a 36-year-old SEAL named Jonathan Grant who was in a car accident in the United States that left him in a coma with brain injuries. His wife is 32-year-old Laura Browning Grant. She had to leave her home in North Carolina to go be by his side. And now she is sticks a, around with him every day in his rehab facility for up to 10 hours a day, helping him to relearn simple things like standing. Uh, she helped him. She There's a great video out there of her, like, teasing him with a kiss to get him to walk uh, and do some of the exercises that he's supposed to be doing. Um, she It's just it's the most beautiful thing you've ever seen of uh, – uh, a loving wife caring for her husband, and you can only imagine how hard it is. But but look them up on Instagram. Look them up on our at uh, Doctor Matt Show uh, Twitter feed because I, I want you to see what true love looks like and the power of of a strong relationship. I also want you to celebrate the fact that Jonathan was also a Navy SEAL and was willing to uh, again serve for this country, work for this country. And um, and and now is is needing some prayers and some help from the rest of us. So uh, we'll post that on our tweet on our Twitter feed at Dr. Matt Show. And let's remember 
Life is good. You are blessed to be where you are, no matter how uh, difficult the world seems. Um, there are others that are struggling even more, and they also need your prayers as well. We'll continue the journey straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Top of the morning to you. Happy Thursday. Dr. Matt here along with Terry and Jeff. The gang is gathered and uh, we are uh, we're ready to give you just a plethora of incredible news stories. Matt, what is a plethora? <laughs> I liked your uh, your Spanish accent. That was Spanish because you had a little lisp. Well, thank you. Barcelona. Yeah. I know my accents. Well, I know my Spanish accents. And yet you don't know the difference between Greek and Italian. Even though I am one. Exactly. Anywho, got a great show for you. Uh, President Trump still out of the country, hanging out in China. Being wined and dined, as only the Chinese can. Apparently. And he's not mad at them for taking advantage of Americans and our trade policies. Or at least he won't be, as you said, until he returns home. Yeah. When he gets home, then he'll be mad at him again. But now that he's there, he's really just mad at past administrations. Do do you think he'll return home and then try to kind of get caught up on what happened or didn't happen because right now they're they're uh they call it the write-up or whatever for the the tax plan yeah, yeah so they're yeah. sitting in these meetings and people are tossing mm-hmm. out ideas right. they vote on it it either gets included or it doesn't yeah. the markup goes on and this is just to get the house plan out this isn't like this the isn't final this, bill yeah but well do you think he'll he'll come home and you were talking before about he criticizes people when they're not in the room uh-huh. How does that work in D.C.? Is it the room or the city? It's probably both. He doesn't care? I, I really – I really. He, he remember, we, we even talked about this as he was just running, is he doesn't necessarily have a philosophy. Hmm. So everyone in D.C. has a philosophy. Like you're either, you're either GOP or you're a Dem. You're one of them. Right. Or, but he really, I think, is just a utilitarian. It's more you're with me or you're not. Yeah. What can I – what do I need? Hmm. And who can get me that in this moment? And then he just talks about or turns it. And so right now, he's really chummy with the Chinese because he's there. Right. And notice he hasn't said much about North Korea. Who was it? Uh, well, he gave a, the big he gave the teleprompter speech the other day in South Korea yeah. about North Korea. About North Korea. But he hasn't called him all the funny names. Rocket he's been Man calling. or yeah. any of that stuff. And yeah. somebody made a, a joke because, you know, the bombs can reach him. That's so right. he's not being all mouthy over there. I'm guessing he can get away with talking about these people in the room because I think he has something akin to the cone of silence from Get Smart. Oh, yeah. Does he? Missed it by that much. He's yep. got the cone of silence. Exactly. Now, he, That's exactly he apparently is able to tweet out of China. But is he, is, right? he seems quieter. Is he tweeting well, less? They're time? not like, is it the time frame? It's not anti-China tweets, though, right? Yeah, he's no. thanking people. He's praising yeah. people. And so maybe there's some coordinate. It seems there's a lot of speculation because they have their firewall. 
and they shut down access to Twitter. So they have their own social media there that the government has a, some control over. Oh, interesting. So somehow Trump's able to get through the firewall. And now yeah. when people go over there to visit, there's some little tricks you can do to get by the sensors, get by the firewall and, and get your information out. Well, but that yeah. usually gets shut down because they can see he, that kind of yeah, thing Yeah, he probably carries, right, his own communication services and team. Yeah. So they're probably using satellite phones and... For Twitter? Yeah. He's the is... president of the United States. He's got to tweet. Okay. This is code red. <laughs> Must tweet to keep country mm. moving. All right. I think that would be a code blue, actually. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Code light blue for Twitter. Mm. Um, so anyway, he's he's out and he'll come back and then he'll beat them up when he comes back. But... Uh, they're really treating them well. They're they're yes. rolling out the red carpets. They're having big parades. The parades he wanted that he never got. Never got here. Yeah. He still wants to do that though. Oh yeah, who doesn't? He wants to have tanks growing right down Pennsylvania Avenue. Oh, how cool would that Except be? Except the city of DC is like the tanks will Meh. tear up the roads. But hey, you know what? He, he'll rebuild new ones. Then there's an infrastructure project. They See? can pay people to fix it. It's all good. He's bringing jobs to DC. So uh, we'll 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 give you more information on that. Plus. Um, we got to talk about the fact that there are three men in the United States that are richer than 160 million other people in the United States. Wow. Combined. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's It's crazy. The numbers are crazy. Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos and Bezos and uh, Warren Buffett, all wealthier than the poorest half of the United States. See, so this is why go to class, you guys. Get it, get smart hmm. and build a media empire. Is that how you, you, you survive? Or if you're Warren Buffett, just invest in a lot of good business. So we'll talk about that a little bit more uh, in a bit. But first to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? As we've been talking about, President Donald Trump has vowed to change one-sided and unfair trade relations with China, but gave Beijing great credit for taking advantage of the U.S. And comments made during a joint press conference with Chinese President Xi Jinping Thursday Trump said the current trade relations between the two countries are not sustainable and called for a more level economic playing field, lamenting America's huge annual trade deficit with the country. He went on to praise Beijing for its trade practices, however. I don't blame China, he said. After all, who can blame a country for being able to take advantage of another country for the benefit of its citizens? I give China great credit. Hmm. They then applauded. That. Well, now that actually is kind of like a backhanded compliment. He goes, but in act, yeah, kind of. He goes, it, it was funny because the the clapping was slow, and then they clapped yeah. some more, and then at the oh, end, after okay. they heard, because at first he goes, I don't blame China, and they're like, okay, that sounded good. You get away for the yeah. translation yeah. to catch it. Yeah, and then he gave the whole yeah thing there, and he just you've got to credit a country what? that's willing to ravage another country for their people. Yeah, and they're like, uh, <laughs> what? All right, says, so, but in, in actuality, I do blame past administrations for allowing this out of control trade deficit to take place and grow, he said. Trump reportedly signed about 15 business deals with Beijing valued around $250 billion during his visit, according to China's commerce minister. Many of the agreements were non-binding, however, and analysts say they could take years to materialize. Were, were they Trump deals or were they um, I don't country know. deals? I don't know if he was signing off his name or how this <laughs> even works anymore. So we'll see. Uh, GOP leaders will brief the conference on details of their long-awaited tax overhaul legislation Thursday morning at 11.30 a.m. in the Strom Thurmond Room at the Capitol, according to two sources. I hear that's the oldest room in the Capitol. That's right. And this is from this is the tax bill from the Senate. 
Okay. The House bill is being processed. Yeah. Should be out by Thanksgiving. Senate's got their own bill. The session is meant to walk senators who are not on the tax writing finance committee through the intricacies of the GOP tax mm. bill before unveiling it to the public. This is a different approach from the health bills yeah. where they kept them secret in a room in the basement and Rand Paul's walking around with a copy machine trying to find the bill. <laughs> the pl- <laughs> The plan is expected to have significant differences from the house. Oh, that's funny. You remember that? Did you yeah, see totally. that video? Oh, yeah. They're like a wagon or something, and they're just dragging this thing around. <laughs> like, dude. It was a good media thing. It was a great media it, stunt. It made me want to watch the news. In recent undercover tests of multiple airport security checkpoints by the Department of Homeland Security, inspectors say screeners, their equipment for their procedures, failed more than half of the time, according to a source familiar with the classified report. Hmm. When ABC News asked the source familiar with the report if the TSA failure rate was 80%, the response was, you are in the ballpark. Really? Mm. Their failure rate is right around 80%. They didn't say high, they didn't say low, but wow. 80%. I wonder what our failure rate is. I don't know. On this show? A lot higher than that. Hmm. In a pub, well, we're not letting, like, guns through security checkpoints when we're supposed to catch them, that kind of thing. Aren't we? No, it's a little different. In a public hearing following the private classified briefing to the House Committee on Homeland Security, members of Congress called the failures by the TSA disturbing. The news of the failure comes two years after ABC News reportedly uh, reported that security teams from DHS found that TSA failed 95% of the time to stop inspectors from covertly smuggling weapons or explosive material through screening checkpoints. Okay, sure, but that's a very negative way to look at it. They they fail 95% of the time at that, but they're, I think, 100% accurate at at mistouching and at slowing down your travel plans. Right. And stopping the person that looks the least amount like yeah. a terrorist at all. Yeah, More this, like, and we call know. that the senior frisk. Yeah. <laughs> Why are you stopping the 65-year-old grandma? Right. Oh, well. Um, do you take, like, luxurious, relaxing baths? No. You don't, you don't take a bath? I don't know that I've had a bath. Just lounge in the tub? Who has time to do that? Does your, does your wife? No. My wife would like to. Oh, yeah. No, I think it's a great idea. Yeah. I'd also like to, you know, be covered in mud. Do you know what a bath bomb is? Well, I think they mean different things, but yeah, like a big soapy bomb that <laughs> well, has it, a bunch of yummy it's like a, scents. I've in seen it. them; they're like round ball shaped, yeah. and you drop it in, and it starts fizzing, and all mm-hmm. these aromas and fizzy bubbles, and it just yeah. kind of turns your your tub into a little spa situation, yeah. you know. So it's a thing. It's People a bomb. Like it. it's, a, it's a it's a bath bomb. How would you like your bath bomb to smell like I don't know Kentucky Fried Chicken? No, now we're talking. We, 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 wouldn't we just call that like a bath fry? So in Japan, they have drumstick shaped Kentucky or fried chicken bath bombs. Oh yuck! That you that you that's horrible. <laughs> you toss in the bath. And uh, it says they're only being sold in Japan, so you can you have to fly there to get it, obviously. So, you know, figure that out. They won't ship it out. So you come home after a long day of work. You want to unwind, take a relaxing fried chicken-scented bath. Mm. Do no? people? Yes. Well, I have a son that would love this. Really? But he doesn't bathe Sounds either. horrible. Um, yeah, that does I, sound... I have, a, I have a hard time with stuff that's just the... Whatever the the sense they have, because uh-huh. it's all flowery. Yeah, no, not really into but that. But does it ha- does it come with um, coleslaw? No, just the chicken. Just the oh, here we go. Yeah, this is a Japanese Kentucky Fried Chicken commercial. 
The bath bomb. I'm translating. Nothing smells better in the bath than a chicken leg. As it says, bathing in the aroma of KFC's 11 herbs and spices may or may not sound like ideal to you, but it does sound pretty, sound like a pretty sweet deal to nearly 8,000 Twitter users. The way people get this in, in Japan, you retweet the Chinese or the Japanese KFC advertisement for this. You retweet it and they'll send you a free KFC bath bomb. Hmm. Now, let me get this straight. So yeah. when you're soaking in a KFC chicken bath bomb, yes. don't you feel like you're a meal? You're, you're somehow cooking yourself? Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the water's hot and you smell fried chicken. Yeah. Maybe. I don't want to... I want to relax. I don't want to sit there and just get hungry. Don't just, you remember the uh, sunscreen, the yep. chicken sunscreen yeah. that they came out with? Yeah. I have a feeling this is just more of like a marketing ploy. You think so? Yeah. I'm going to like, because then it becomes the perfect white elephant. But I, well, there's that. The only thing that would <laughs> make this better is if you could get the, if you could get KFC delivered to you while you're soaking in this bath. Yeah. Well, that would be an awkward moment, but totally. And if you could get their parfait, because that – I'd rather have them send me some parfait. Rather than the bath bomb? Yeah. But it's a Kentucky – it's it's a chicken leg-shaped bath bomb too. Okay. So just send me coupons. Okay. Just send me a gift card. I just thought maybe that would be an option. Maybe you seem sort of tense the last few days. Maybe you could relax. Mm, yeah. A little chicken flavor. No? Just Okay, just I'm not seeing I, it. Just thought it was an option. Give I mean, me a, don't get me wrong. I love food bath bombs. Mm. It's just that one. I mean, a burrito supreme. I think if you Taco Bell, absolutely, I'd let that float around my tongue. If you get out, I mean, people like lavender is a big scent in some of these bath bombs. Yeah. I've been told, and oh, sometimes you've been you told. Get, <laughs> you're such. A... Sometimes you get out and you smell like lavender. Do you well, get out and smell like? Kentucky Fried Chicken? Yeah. Do you want to smell like that all day well, long? yeah. Then the cat circles you Yeah, all day. you're just sort of wandering, smelling like food. I don't know. <laughs> you have to keep kicking the le- dog off your leg. Dog, get away. <laughs> but Shoot. <laughs> KFC holds a special place in Japan. As when they have holidays, people order months in advance for their Christmas dinner and oh, New Year's neat, dinner yeah. for for the Kentucky Fried Chicken. Those, yeah, those are going to go off the shelf. I yeah. just passed a sign here uh, locally. There's a sign up for Thanksgiving. People can get their Cajun deep fried chickens on, for Thanksgiving. Well, that's wrong. Everybody Never had a deep fried chicken or well, turkey? Everybody knows it's turkey. I've had Kentucky sea- Fried Chicken should be closed. I've had seafood, like burritos, about all kinds of stuff on Thanksgiving dinner. Tamales. Mm. Those are fun. We had Greek one year for Thanksgiving. Opa! That was good food. Did I tell you I'm Greek? Yeah. You, 7% you either this. Greek or Italian. Yeah. When, Don't the, know when the words one. were leaving my mouth, I'm like, oh, here Opa! We go. Um, okay, that's interesting. That's really good news <laughs> for the seven people that want a chicken flavored 18,000 retweets. Yeah, it's it's but it's it's those are all for white elephant gifts. Okay. Mhm. Nobody's really going to use that. And the one guy that does mm-hmm. totally going to be mauled by a bear. Do you think it stains your tub? Oh, I'm sure. I mean, big grease stain around. Yeah, it. I'm just like I don't With know. Floating herbs and spices. It ain't as pretty once you like play it out. Mhm. It really kind I of, think initially it's like, "Oh, that's an interesting hey, idea." Hey, that was creative. Like, yeah. That was a very creative marketing idea. Next mm-hmm. thing you know, you got a guy boiling in a grease pot. 
calling it bath time. Yikes. Uh, let's get to the empty news headlines with Jeffrey Liam Simpson, our the anchor. The empty news team. First on the scene. Fifth on facts. Tell me if you think this is fair. Okay. Okay. So there's this 54-year-old woman uh, in Florida who was arrested after she was caught stealing cement pavers from a home in Port Ritchie. Now, was she stealing them or borrowing them? She was stealing them. Okay. Okay. So we'll get to the part here in a second where you can chime in and whether you think it's fair or not. Deputies arrested Julianne Upright uh, when he found 42 cement decorative blocks worth $420 in her vehicle. The homeowner told detectives that he caught her taking the blocks without permission. They were part of a remodeling project and were stored in the front yard about four feet from the roadway. The owner said upright said she thought they were trash. Deputies said she then threatened to sue the owner because she hurt her back on his property while loading the blocks into her vehicle. (laughs) So, uh, by the way, it's funny that her name is upright and she's having back problems. Yeah, she won't be upright for long if she keeps moving stuff like that. Should she be allowed to sue somebody for trying to steal their property? No. And she should be forced to go work on her hands and knees laying those pavers. Now, wait a minute. What if she genuinely thought that they were giving them away? Well, then why would she start threatening lawsuits? Because if they – Because she was trapped. If she thought they were free. Mm -mm. Hmm. No. Something's fishy there. See, that's the thing. You, you, You don't get mad if you're innocent. That's true. It's not – if you're innocent, you're like – But if if you have hospital bills all of a sudden – Because you're moving Somebody's got to pay for it. And – yeah. She'd be the person who was giving the blocks away for free but not really. Yeah, and you'd think there would be a sign that say, hey, free blocks, but watch out for your back because they really weigh a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, not not fair. Yeah. OK. Here's an, Here's another one. Yes. Uh, so there's a home in Arizona. It's a it's called the Stardust Ranch in Rainbow Valley. Okay, and it's nice and big. It's got just about everything you'd want. Lots of acreage, private entry, uh, but also a possible portal to another universe. Oh boy! Yeah, and uh, this guy's trying to sell it because almost immediately they noticed from the day we moved in, we began to have strange experiences. Really? Including being visited by aliens. Oh, how cool. This thing's going to go fast. He also said that the aliens tried to abduct his wife. Really? Would this, uh, I mean, as a realtor, how would you try to sell this home? (laughs) Uh, Portal to extra worlds, extraterrestrial worlds. Okay. You throw that in one of the... You know. And this guy is claiming they actually levitated her out of the bed in the master chamber and carried her into the parking lot and tried to draw her up into the craft. Okay. So um, it, this ranch is getting some attention because it was actually featured in an episode of Ghost Adventures on the Travel Channel. Mm. And uh, during the episode, Edmonds claims he found an alien artifact and was visited by the real men in black. Now, that last claim I take issue with. Yeah. Because if he had been visited by the real men in black, he wouldn't have remembered That's the, right. the They would have erased his memory. Right? Yeah. So to me, I don't know what, I don't know Something's about you, but. hinky. Yeah. To me, it sounds 
like uh, I mean, if you think about country western songs, you're mm-hmm. singing about my dog died, yeah, uh, my girlfriend broke up with me, my wife and, got levitated, yeah. and taken to a spaceship almost. I think that's the other common country song, yeah. and I think they've actually already made a country song oh, out cool. of this. We had just bought ourselves a ranch in Rainbow Valley. Things were a-okay, we're as happy as a clam. But then one day we started to fret. Twas a day I'll never forget. When them aliens tried abducting my poor wife. When you think of etiquette, you probably think of knowing the difference between your salad and your dessert fork at an upscale dinner party, right? But did you know that business etiquette is also equally essential? Business etiquette can be confusing sometimes, especially with the use of cell phones. And so here to help us sort through all of the modern business etiquette issues and potential problems is Roseanne Thomas. Uh, she's going to hopefully make it a lot easier for us. She um, is uh, uh, one of the founders at Protocol Advisors, Inc., which is a business etiquette and international protocol training company. And Roseanne, we're, we're so grateful to have you. Thank you for being with us today. I am so grateful to be with you. Thank you. <laughs> hey, now, here's the question of all questions. Um, should we answer our telephone if we are in the restroom? <laughs> That's a very good one. I would I would prefer that you didn't. Yeah. You just quickly get out of the restroom first. Right. I, I can't imagine anything that couldn't wait for 10 seconds, so I right. would say no. How about don't even take your phone in there? Well, that would be nice. That would be nice because it's really difficult to ignore these kinds of conversations going on. I mean, there's there's (laughs) that weird moment where someone's like, hello, and you're like, hello, and they're actually on their phone. You're not sure if they're talking to you or... Are you talking to me? (laughs) So talk to us about this, Roseanne, because we've also seen with President Trump and, and, and any president, really, for example, there's a lot of international protocol. There's a lot of rules when it comes to dignitaries. And it's it's easy to kind of make mistakes at that level. And the, and that that's the president being advised. But the rest of us don't have advisors telling us what to do. Exactly right. And, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a, a minefield out there because the rules have changed. I mean, some of them are still the same, but some of them have changed just because our, we've changed, you know, we, with, with technology and with the various populations that are in the workplace and the, and the five generations that are in the workplace, it is not necessarily intuitive what to do. We don't mean to, to misstep, mis- I should say, but we unfortunately inadvertently do. Yeah, and I guess because if the rules are changing and uh, even like with, with technology, having a new cell phone, it seems like a lot of those rules are changing and people are always looking at their phones now. So, so how much does this matter? And help us understand, are we really forgiving of each other when people make mistakes or, or does this have bigger consequences than we realize? Well, that's an interesting question. I would like to think we're forgiving of one another, especially if we're 
under the impression that it was probably inadvertent. And it, m- most of us have the best intentions. So I would like to think we'd forgive one another. Having said that, I can't guarantee that we will. And, you know, everything else being equal, people want to work with and associate with other people who they think respect them and know them and um, have taken some time to understand what respect means to them. So, yes, it can have consequences. And you, I mean, you've written the book on it, Excuse Me, The Survival Guide to Modern Business Etiquette. How did you get into this field? Well, uh, thank you for the question. Um, I've been in this business for 22 years, and actually it was by happenstance I had worked for Tiffany and Company, the jeweler in, hmm. in New York, and working for their corporate sales division, which meant I was selling to corporations, and got lots of questions on what sort of gift to give to a Japanese client and how do I entertain this client. And from there, I thought there might be a market uh, in this because it's just there wasn't a great deal of information out there at that point. And so um, I thought I would uh, throw my hat in the ring. <laughs> yeah, is it? Because I, I'm a, I have a, a business outside of the radio show, and but I, I kind of look at this um, this etiquette and also just kind of hospitality as part of a, an extension of who I am. I guess that that's part of this thing is that if somebody mistreats me in a business setting, it's the brand that mistreats me. Absolutely right. And not only their personal brand, but we tend to extend that to the company for which they work. Yeah. So it's it's really um, – it has – problematic uh, consequences uh, down the line. So, and, and to your point, you know, we, we do like to work with people who we think respect us, but we don't know necessarily what respect means to them. Yeah. And so talk about that because we, some of this, you know, is just, it seems like we used to be taught some of this. I had a sister that <laughs> went to a finishing school and um, she was the only family member that my grandma sent to finishing school. So it's kind of a funny joke in our family. But um, it, it did teach her a lot about hospitality and, and, and you know, being the host. Right. Well, you know what? You're absolutely right. In the, in the last century, uh, we were taught this either at home or in classes or in school or maybe in church because people understood how critical it was to a, a child's future. They were they were going to be judged on their social skills or the lack thereof. And, you know, there used to be some consequences, and I still think there are consequences, either social or personal or professional, that if someone didn't have these skills, well, they were setting themselves up for potential um, problems. No, absolutely. And um, is it is it about uh, – you brought up respect earlier and civility. Do you sense that civility is dropping because we're not teaching about it, training about it? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm worried about that, to tell you the truth. I'm not 100% sure of the numbers. I mean, we, we read online and in the papers and we see on television uh, things that we've seen here, things we've never seen or heard before. And I don't know whether or not what percentage of the population this represents. But yes, I am concerned that we're getting sort of a steady diet of what used to be absolutely unacceptable behavior and uh, language. And we've seen um, more and more with sexual abuse uh, cases going up and more people announcing sexual abuse issues and harassment issues. I mean, it seems like we've been, you know, we've had episodes over the last 15, 20 years or so that have highlighted the importance of that. Um, and that's just one form of incivility uh, in the workplace. But I guess th- we, we need to talk more about it. Well, I think we do because, uh, you know, uh, there are a lot of people out there who are, are unaware that, no, they can no longer, you know, um, 
do things that they might that might yeah. have been okay back in the last century. They don't know that, and um, and so they're afraid to do anything. Um, and you know, I, I I can't blame the people who feel like they're being um, you know. Uh, I guess not abused, but basically disrespected. Yeah. yeah so it's, it's, it's kind of tough. We've got to figure out a way to agree upon a new set of uh, rules, a new playbook. What are some other uh, things that we are doing that maybe unintentionally or not even knowing it, but we're violating, we're violating the respect of another, we're, vi- we're violating civility? Sure. Well, you know, right now we have literally five generations in the workplace. The latest generation is only a couple of years into the workplace, but what this means is that we have people working with one another who are 50 years apart in age. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and so they clearly look at the world differently. Their experience are different. And so, for instance, the millennials, the younger ones, might not realize that the baby boomers and the, the older folks, the traditionalists, really do take uh, exception to the fact that you're on your cell phone looking at the cell phone as opposed to looking at them hmm. uh, and conversing with them. It doesn't occur to millennials. I don't think they mean to offend, but they they might. And it, yeah. you know, the people who they are offending might be the ones who have the jobs for them, or the promotions, or the you know the business, that kind of thing. So we've got to be careful. Well, and it's interesting because um, too, we always talk about uh, baby boomers, millennials, X Gen, and then we kind of we we all throw out this generational uh, vision of each generation. But the, the, I guess ageism and and how we how we treat one another could also be just as big of an issue in a corporation as sexism. Absolutely right. It's, I, we have to guard against that. And, you know, unfortunately, the, sometimes the younger folks are, are um, accused of, of not being, you know, sort of respectful of the older folks um, in terms of, uh, you know, what they know. And, but the thing is, Older folks need to be respectful of the younger folks right. as well. It goes it goes both ways. And I guess too, um, if we're not careful, we could actually have a our corporation could create a culture. Our organization could actually have a culture that uh, is is maybe uh, you know creating a um, an uncivil uh, situation or or really just maybe a disrespectful culture. Absolutely right. And you know what? It, it starts at the top. Cultures of the executives in the organizations, no matter what the organization is, have to be vigilant about this. And they have to, I think, they want to know what the the rules are today, and they want to make sure that they're communicating their standards of their code of conduct and making sure that they're enforcing it. And if it doesn't go well, to, you know, to address it, because there's too much at stake these days. It's not only the individual, it's the company, but it the individual who who really suffers. And we do live in a global economy as well. So you could easily be having, you know, visitors or guests from other countries. Uh, What have you learned as a protocol expert, an international protocol expert and advisor about preparing for somebody that's coming from a different culture? Well, I've learned that we maybe don't do it as much as we ought to. (laughs) Yeah, we just kind of wing it. Yeah, we kind of wing it, and it's interesting because people from other cultures go to great lengths to learn about the United States culture, and um, we kind of do wing it. I'm, I'm generalizing here; yeah. not everyone does. But then, then they find out that wow, I wish I'd known that before this meeting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of thing. And I guess so. That yeah. could, some of that's just studying it out. I mean, the other thing you could do is if if it's an executive coming from somewhere, you could you could talk to their assistant and find out more about the executive in order to know what they like, what they don't like, how to be treated. Definitely. 
do your due diligence, if you will, definitely to find out some of those details. But there's a lot of information. You know, the good news is we don't have to be an expert on another person's culture, but we have to show a good faith effort that we've tried to learn about it and so that, so that we won't, you know, inadvertently offend them. Yeah, it, it really is. And I guess, too, that you... Um because we have seen a lot of nationalism happening with Brexit and here in the United States where everyone's kind of hunkering down and protecting America, build the walls and you know keep people out. But there still needs to be a spirit of good faith and good effort if you want to if you want to positively affect others. I think so. I, I think so. I think our world is getting more global, not less. <laughs> yeah, my yeah. Opinion. And, and so I think we have to um, be, you know, and we all know when we're beating, being treated respectfully or not. We know that. So it, it's not too, you know, hard to understand how we might be coming across to other people. There was once a time when we would all want to adhere to the golden rule, which is to treat others the way we would want to be treated. That's a good place to start. But now we want to actually employ the platinum rule, which is to treat others the way they want to be treated. Hmm. And we've got to find that out. Yes. We're, again, we're speaking with Roseanne Thomas, who is uh, the founder and president of Protocol Advisors, Inc. And in that position, she helps people achieve personal, professional, and financial success by really understanding the the rules, the rules to modern business etiquette. She wrote a book, Excuse Me, The Survival Guide to Modern Business Etiquette. And Roseanne, in that, I know, too, you talk about there there is some there's some good etiquette rules for cell phones and guidelines for cell phones. Just maybe give us some of those so we can so we can start to uh, know how better to, to act in our business settings. Sure. Well, I think first and foremost, we have to accept that the person in front of us takes precedence over any incoming or outgoing call or, or text. And, and they do. So we've got to show respect for that person. My thinking is, you know, this could be dangerous if, if you don't uh, with clients, with bosses and with other higher ups. So I, I just think if we could put our cell phone away for just the duration of that meeting, maybe it's only a couple of minutes, but and actually turn it off because we don't want to have a vibrating telephone that is going to or phone that's going to be distracting and, and could derail a conversation. Uh, and interesting, I read a story that said that even having a phone on a desk or table is enough, is, is enough to reduce empathy hmm. between people. And we don't want that. No, because <laughs> you're, you're going to communicate that you, you don't care. And it may not even be your intent, but right. you're saying something. You're saying something. You're saying that I, I may get a call, and if I do, I may take it, and, and you might be relegated to the back seat for a few moments. And no one really likes to have think about that. Yeah. You know? What would your What would your advice be if you are, um, you know, in transit? If you're If you're just you know walking to a meeting, you know, in a lobby of a meeting of a building. Do we take calls there? If you're taking a call, what advice do you give for the proper etiquette about you being on the phone? Sure. Right off the bat, I'd ask you to please look where you're going. <laughs> I, I walked on a sidewalk just the other day and literally almost collided with two young folks who, who weren't looking where they're going. So start there and then, of course, keep your voice, your, your, the decibel level down and be concerned about what it is you're you're sharing on the telephone because people can hear you. And so we have to, you know, if we're trying to protect others' uh, 
privacy, and our own for that matter, we've got to be really careful about what we share on the phone. In fact, President uh, Trump's attorneys just were having a conversation at a restaurant. They were overheard by reporters, and then it created a major stir about uh, something going on with his legal case. Sure. And it, it, it happens. Every, we, are, we are constantly under surveillance these days. Yeah. Can, everything we are doing and saying is, is, is observed or heard. And so we want to be really, really vigilant. What, what advice do you give us on social media? Because that's just as widely uh, used. And also, I mean, now businesses are actually researching you and doing a background check on you and your social media uses before ever hiring you. Absolutely right. Virtually everyone will go to your, your social media pages, and they do this to try to get a sense of you that past the resume that you've, you've sent in, because they they think, and they're probably right, that they can get a, a sense of the real person based upon what they post and who they're friends with and what their friends post. So yes, be assured that uh, a recruiter or a hiring manager is going to go to your social media. I, I would say treat this with kid gloves. Realize that it is out there forever. There is no way to erase your digital past, you know, no way to start over. You, We have digital footprints that grow bigger and bigger and bigger every single day. Absolutely. And, uh, it, it's scary. What about uh, business dress? I mean, now there's casual, you know, there used to be one casual day. Now some companies have very casual um, days. Also, uh, a lot of exercise gear is now being worn day in and day out as just regular gear for uh, work. What what should our model be, and and how do we know the proper attire? Sure. Well, so that's also going to it's going to vary from company to company, location to location. Basically, your culture. The corporate culture defines what you're going to wear. And so it's, it's far different the way in which you might dress for a law firm or a financial services firm versus, um, you know, laid back uh, Silicon Valley or, or maybe, and clearly if you're in the healthcare or hospitality or creative field. So it's all different. And that's fine. It's, that's perfectly fine. But we dress at the high end of whatever our company, our culture has defined as appropriate. So hmm. we've, we've got to look around. We've got to look up. We've got to ask questions. And, and, and always try to be at the higher end of the spectrum, not always dragging through the dirt. <laughs> exactly right. Exactly right. Whatever your, your attire code is, be at the higher end of that spectrum. Absolutely. Yeah. I, uh, I do a lot of public speaking, and my question is always, you know, what's, what's the dress? What's everybody else going to be wearing? And then I always try to be at the highest end of that, or at least even maybe one stage ahead of that. And because um, it's really there's that awkward moment when you are the underdressed one. Oh, it's exactly right. And, you know, attire, as it always has been, is a way in which we show respect, not only for ourselves, but for the other person and for the, the occasion. And so we almost can never, almost can never make a mistake dressing up. You probably can, but, but yeah. generally speaking, you generally you're not going to get in trouble dressing up. You can get in trouble not dressing up. <laughs> yeah, it's true, huh? And um, and I guess, too, uh, just as we are nearing the holidays, this is when a lot of companies will start having company parties and, mm-hmm. you know, getting together, sometimes serving alcohol, and that also can create other issues. What, what What's your overall rule on uh, parties and celebrations with your work and coworkers? My... My advice is to treat this particular event, certainly treat it like a, a business event and maybe the most 
treacherous terrain you'll cover ever because yeah. in, in your business life because there are so many variables and then as you mentioned there's alcohol and there's um you know clearly there's food and there's music and it, it seems like a relaxed atmosphere it seems that way to the extent that people actually relax their behavior and then maybe end up regretting that yeah and again that is, that almost seems like where we then have other problems and then other uh you know other um disrespectful acts and, and and the incivility it's almost where the incivility can appear because you've taken down you know some of your barriers but keep the barriers up keep them up keep them up you know this is a business event that you know it's it's really isn't it looks like a social event yeah. but it's a business event and everything you do and say of course is going to be noted and judged and remembered unfortunately yeah uh, overall Roseanne in your book excuse me the survival guide to modern business etiquette what what's the one thing i always like to know the one thing that we can do today that's just the the best rule for making it uh, through in a healthy, safe way and, and holding up our business standards to their highest level? Sure. I would say, you know, in, engage in a random act of kindness. There you go. <laughs> Hold that door open for someone who's coming in behind you or the elevator door. Uh, you, you know, say hello to someone who's coming toward you in, in the hallway and use their name, smile. Uh, just basically be someone who others are, you know, feel comfortable about themselves around. You know, Maya Angelou said, we never forget how people made us feel. So be that person who others think, hmm, I felt good around that person. So true. So true. Roseanne J. Thomas, thank you for being with us today. Again, uh, the book is Excuse Me, The Survival Guide to Modern Business Etiquette. And you can find out more by going to the website, protocoladvisors.com, a great resource uh, for you and your businesses to really make sure you're you're on top of this. Really, a little business etiquette slip, and uh, you could be in some serious financial problems, legal issues. It, it pays to uh, to respect one another. We'll continue the journey and uh, do a little Coach's Corner. Up next, this is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Welcome back, friends. You know, um, I, so I do a lot of speaking, and I was speaking for a large organization. I won't name their name. Um, and did a training, an evening, uh, no, an afternoon training. And then we went to a New York Yankees game. And then I was going to be training that whole next day. And craziest thing happened at the New York Yankees game. Everybody in the company pretty much got totally drunk at the Yankees game. And I drove home in a bus full of an entire company division leaders intoxicated. And at, and we didn't get back to the hotel till about 1230. And in my head, I'm thinking there is no way we're going to – there's no way. There's no way we're going to be able to get everybody up and have our meetings at 7 a.m., and so I talked to the boss about it. And he goes, oh, no, no, no. They'll all be there. They'll all be there. And I go, will they be productive? And he's like, they'll be amazing. Just watch. And we showed up and amazingly they were all there and they were all productive, I guess. I mean as productive as we could be. But it, it dawned on me that, boy, you had all of your executives in New York City and it, it, a lot of things can go wrong. A lot of things can go wrong with one bad episode. One bad fall, one bad uh, situation. And so just be careful. 
I mean, I get it. You want to celebrate. You want to be together as a team. You want to you want to have fun. But man, be careful because in the end, it's not worth it or the, the lawsuit's not worth it or losing a really good, talented person isn't worth it or mistakes being made or marriages being lost and ruined because of your business trip. It's just not worth it, folks. So all of us can be a little bit more careful and actually more respectful and taking care of each other a little bit more. Uh, interesting stuff there. Hey, up next, we're going to be talking with uh, doing a little uh, producer uh, bit with Leanna Tan. It's titled Meet Cute. Straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show. According to Wikipedia, in film and television, a meet-cute is a scene in which uh, a future romantic couple meets for the first time. The term has existed since at least the early 1940s. This type of scene is a staple of romantic comedies. Producer Leanna Tan shares some stories about how famous people like Walt Disney and J.K. Rowling met their future spouses. Have you ever heard of a meet-cute? It's a term that was coined in the 1940s and refers to a scene in film or television where a future romantic couple meets for the first time. You know, like when Jack saves Rose from falling to her death on the Titanic. I'll never forget you, Rose. Jack! Or when Noah asks Allie to dance at a carnival in The Notebook. In the movies, the meet-cutes always seem so perfect. In real life, it seems more like people meet on, like, a dating website or in the same college class or on a blind date or something. The meet-cutes of real life seem a lot more attainable than some of those love stories played out on TV. But that got me wondering, how do famous people meet their spouses? I mean, they can't really get on a dating website or something, right? Out of curiosity, I looked up how five different famous people met their spouses. Number one, Serena Williams. Now, I guess cinematic meet-cutes really do happen because this isn't your average Tinder meetup. Apparently, Williams was in Rome at a hotel. She and her little posse sat down for breakfast when some guy sat on the table next to her, even though there were a bunch of other free tables. Williams told him, we don't want you to sit with us, and told him there were rats by his table. But the guy just said, I'm from Brooklyn. I see rats all the time. So eventually, she invited him to sit with them. The guy didn't know much about tennis, but he agreed to come watch her match later that day. Williams had never heard of the company this guy had co-founded, So he told her a little about something called Reddit. They went on their first date right before the French Open, and they walked around Paris for six hours before the match started. I guess she impressed him with her tennis skills, and he wooed her with his computer knowledge. So they decided to get married. Number two, Walt Disney. Now this is a little more typical situation to meet someone. Walt Disney was just beginning the Alice series, and he and his brothers needed some help. They asked one of their employees, Kathleen, if she knew anyone. Well, there was this girl named Lillian who had just moved from Idaho to L.A. to live with her sister. So Kathleen asked Lillian if she'd help out. Since it wasn't too far from her house, Lillian applied for the job and went in for an interview. The first time she saw Disney, he was wearing a brown coat, sweater, raincoat, and pants. Bless her heart for looking past the wardrobe. She got the job, and Disney often drove Lillian and Kathleen home after work. But he always dropped off Lillian last. They started falling in love. Disney was nervous about meeting her family because he didn't have proper clothes, so he spent $40 to buy a suit and two pairs of pants and met her family, who also fell in love with him. They got married, and Lillian worked her way up to being his personal secretary. Number three, J.K. Rowling. Her story has a little bit more of a modern flair. When she was 25 years old, she went to Portugal as a teacher. 
One of her students was a 23-year-old guy set on a career in journalism. He approached her one day when he saw her at a cafe with friends. They hit it off talking about their love of books and were married a few months later. But things went sour with that marriage and they separated. Years later, Rowling met another guy at a mutual friend's house and eventually married that guy in secret. Number four. Steve Jobs. Jobs was giving a lecture at a Stanford business school one night. There was a new graduate who arrived late and sat in the aisle because there were no seats left. One of the ushers told her that she couldn't be there, so she went to the first row and just sat in one of the reserve seats. Jobs was led to the reserve seat right next to her, and they started chatting while they introduced him as a speaker. She joked that she was sitting there because she'd won a raffle, and the prize was that he got to take her to dinner. After the lecture, Jobs was at the edge of the stage chatting with the students, and he saw the girl that he was talking to come to the stage, and then she left again. So he made his way through the crowd and asked her, wasn't he supposed to take her to dinner? So she gave him her number, and he went on his way to a business dinner. But when he put his key in the ignition, he thought, if it was my last night on earth, would I rather be at this business meeting or at a dinner with this woman? So he chased her down again in the parking lot and took her out that night. And number five, Bill Gates. A girl named Melinda started a new job as a product manager at a company called Microsoft. A few months later, she was at an Expo Trade Fair dinner in New York City, where she met a guy named Bill. A few months after that, Bill decided to ask Melinda on a date. He said if she gave him her number, he'd take her out two weeks from that night. She said she had no idea what she was doing two weeks from that night, and that he just wasn't spontaneous enough for her. Yikes. But he didn't give up just yet, and decided to call her an hour later and ask if that was spontaneous enough for her. She agreed to the date, which was a good move for her because now she's married to one of the richest men in the world. Hmm. Interesting. So, I guess besides the multi-billion dollar fortunes and luxurious first dates in Paris, celebrities are just like us. What I've learned from this is, if you're late for a lecture, you just might end up marrying the CEO of the world's largest information technology company. Or, maybe the point of this is, it doesn't matter if you're in Rome on a luxury vacation or in a shabby shop working as an oil and paint girl, love can be found anywhere. And maybe you should give people a chance, even if they are wearing an an unfashionable sweater and raincoat, or if they're just not that spontaneous, because you never know who they'll end up being. Well, I hope you all find your meet cute and know that you don't have to be a celebrity to find your match. I'm Leanna Tan, and that's my little tangent. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side, along with uh, Jeff Simpson and Terry South, the gang. We have all gathered. We are ready. Uh, Shields are up. (laughs) I'm trying to draw Terry in somehow by using a sci-fi. Shields are up, Terry. Why why would you do that? Uh, To fire. I can't fire with my shields down. So shields up, ready to attack. Should have said force field. Mm, I don't know. See, I don't watch that stuff enough to get the jargon right. Wouldn't have noticed at all. Wouldn't you? You, no. could, you could tell I was fluid. Yeah, it was great. Fluid. Hey, President Trump uh, in China. Mm. And I remember I had a, my grandma went to China, and I, you know, I was so excited when she came back to see what she had brought me. 
and I don't remember what it was, but I just remember it broke pretty quickly after I got it. I'm hoping President Trump brings us all back some goodies. Just some quality. Like some, some candy? Well, or just some quality. Business deals, business deals. trade, mm-hmm. renegotiations. I'm hoping. Kind. Yeah. One of those, like, or like one of the, uh, the Chinese handcuffs. Oh, the, that you the, put your fingers okay. in. And yeah, the finger trapped. traps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if that's what they're still called. No, but yeah, they're I hope fun. Maybe we can get one of those for everyone in the country. Okay, there you go. It's always fun when Dad travels. <laughs> Said Donald Trump Jr. He apparently signed fifteen business deals with, See? with Beijing. That's all good. Apparently, most of them are non-binding and may not take effect for years to come. So maybe frivolous. Who knows? But I mean, he did something. But the best deals you can sign. Apparently. I thought he was mad that why would you sign deals that are non-binding like mm. NAFTA? Right. Was NAFTA non, the non-binding one? No, it was or the, binding. the Iranian one. It was not binding. There was nothing we could do necessarily to fix it. I don't know. Yeah. Well, seeing as that one's with, you know, like seven other seven or six or seven other countries, it's not just us. Yeah. But we feel like everything is us because, you know, we're America. Well, yes. And USA. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and by the way, I love your, your uh, USA t shirt. Yeah. Well, I bring it out on special occasions. Yeah. For some reason, it has the Mexican flag colors on it, though. That's weird. Yeah. I think the colors, I think he washed it wrong. Oh, yeah. Threw in a, a green shirt. Mm hmm. It always happens. Um, Interesting uh, news we'll, we'll get to. Um, well, actually, well, I'll let Terry get to the news because I feel like I always well, steal Well, what do you want to – what is it? I'll tell you if I'm planning on covering that. Sometimes I don't. Uh, Kevin Spacey. No, not at all. Kevin Spacey is losing a lot Everything. of work. <laughs> yeah. And uh, because he was charged with – not charged, but accused of assaulting uh, some actors over years. Now multiple people. Yeah. Yeah. He's um, he's losing a role that had already been shot and in the can. I know that's what I that's what I was actually looking at. And Christopher Plummer is going to now play his role. So they have to go reshoot all of those with now those uh, that part of the movie with Christopher Plummer. Yeah. So, so how that it works? does beg the question: Did he not have a substantial role? Is it is he just in a few key scenes is he a bit or something? Hmm. But they already paid him, I assume. Yeah. Do you, wow. get, do you get a refund on that? Or? I don't know. I'm wondering if next they're going to – if there's any you know proof to any of these allegations, I wonder if they're going to try to strip him of his Oscars. Can you do that? Has one been it's stripped of Oscar? There have been people that have not accepted their Oscars, mm. but I don't know if anybody's been stripped of their Oscar. How would you like to be that guy? If You know what? If they did, if they did – Mr. Spacey? We We're here Oscars. to get your Oscars. They'll send the intern in. Uh, I would I would assume if they were to start stripping Oscars, they would definitely start with Harvey Weinstein. Yeah. Did he get an Oh, yeah, because he's produced. Yeah. Uh, the funny thing is uh, th- this Me Too uh, – I mean the amazing thing is how many people have connected to the Me Too mm-hmm. uh, campaign – and are really, you know, probably cleansing their heart and getting past abuse out that has been haunting them for years. And there is the worry, of course, that others might be, you know, charged or accused of things that they didn't do. But it's probably healing a lot of people. 
And so especially when you feel like possibly that there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. It's I mean, just yeah. this is the way the business this is big works. Hollywood. What am I supposed this is to do? Big yeah. business. He's only won one Oscar actually for Shakespeare in Love. He I was know. nominated for Gangs of New York, but uh, I don't know how you're going to get these awards back. So they're yeah. probably in his house. Some of them a, have already pawned them. Just go take it. It's right there. Yeah, but you got to get in the house. They've either pawned them or they've gotten to the chocolatey center of them. Ooh. Oh, is that what they, they've got chocolate inside? Eight pounds of chocolate. <laughs> oh, that sounds like good. I hope it's not hollow like yeah. those bunny rabbits. Oh, those are so disappointing. I That makes me so mad when you bite into a bunny rabbit. You want a ear. solid piece of chocolate and that's mm-hmm. some hollowed out empty feeling yeah. and... On Easter. Come on. I remember the first time I took an Easter bunny chocolate head and dipped it in peanut butter and wow. broke his head off in the peanut butter jar. Traumatic. I never felt worse in my life. So I just stuck my little eight-year-old hand in that jar. Then everybody was sick uh, yeah. after that, right? Yeah, it was weird. Yeah. We had this weird stomach thing that went through the family. Uh, Let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the country? Senator Rand Paul recovering from six broken ribs as a buildup of fluid in his lung known as pleural effusion. After being assaulted by his neighbor last week while mowing the lawn, the GOP lawmaker tweeted the final medical report after it was initially reported that he had suffered five broken ribs. It's actually six. Oh, so we've got to get... Okay. Just make it facts. We want it clear. Get the facts Factual. on the record. The senator's neighbor has been charged with assault, which his lawyer said was part of a very regrettable dispute between two neighbors over a matter that most people would regard as trivial and had nothing to do with politics. Apparently, it had to do with. I've heard stories about property line issues, like between yeah. their homes and who's mowing what, who's blowing leaves where, you know, that kind of <laughs> stuff. You know, neighbor junk. But you don't tackle a man. Like the fact that all my leaves have fallen off my trees. And they end up on my neighbor's yard. Well, yeah, that, you got to fix that. Though. So he's on his roof with a leaf blower yesterday, and I felt like going over and apologizing. But you know, uh, he's lived there for quite a while. What kind of neighbor are you? I've apologized multiple times for my leaves. Sorry he's about like, my leaves. Yeah, sorry, man. But maybe that's what happened to Rand Paul. He just needs to that's apologize just... more for his rude foliage. Yeah, but now he's got like backup plurifusion. Yeah, plural f- effusion. Blah. Is he's got fluid in his lungs, and he's got six broken ribs. So I feel for the guy because now every time he coughs, he's going to hurt for a year or longer. Some of this stuff never goes away. Yeah, ribs are ribs are really They're bad. The former leader of the free world reported for Cook County jury duty Wednesday morning at the Daily Center in uh, Chicago, but ultimately was dismissed a short time later, officials said, according to the Chicago Tribune. Cook County Chief Judge Timothy Evans told reporters shortly before noon that Barack Obama was not tapped to serve on a jury and dismissed before the day. Indeed, Obama was one of 168 people who showed up for jury duty and assigned to one of 16 panels. According to a spokesperson, eight of those panels, including panel six, which Obama sat on, were randomly selected to be sent home. Around lunchtime, Obama was hit in, was a hit in the jury assembly room, shaking hands with would-be jurors and signing copies of books that people brought with them. Is is there a Barack Obama here? Barack, Barack Obama. Okay, Barack, what did you do before you? Uh, bef- well, what's your li- what do you do for a living? I was ex president. I was the president. So he called. Uh, right. uh, as I uh, read a story last week, he he called ahead. Told the judge, hey, probably knew the guy, hey, I have jury duty. It's going to be chaos. What should, how should we do this? And they brought him in a, an elevator used for judges, so kind of That's a back cool. way because yeah. he can't come through the front no. door. They, it shuts the place down. Honestly, and, and you know what? Again, you got to love that because they, it would have been easier to not do any of this. Yeah. And he's not doing this for show. He's got no. other things to go do. But 
He still shows up? He was actually called cool. for jury duty while he was in the White House. Mm. He responded saying, I'm president. And I'm working on the State of the Union address, which is next Monday. I got this so I'm a little, big, <laughs> little busy. Got the speech I have to I got deliver. This big event. And they let him let him off. What's the deal with Chicago's jury duty program? They're really good at getting people in. You'd think they'd look at the name and go, wait a second. Yeah. But Barrett. it's random. You just yeah. go. Uh, just a few hours after it hit the streets of downtown Las Vegas, a driverless shuttle bus got into a minor accident, but police say the, all the blame goes to the human driver in the other vehicle. No one was injured when a delivery truck hit the electric shuttle shortly after noon on Wednesday, the Las Vegas Review-Journal reports. The shuttle was able to drive alongside other vehicles, since traffic signals, and stop for pedestrians, and police said it stopped after sensing the truck was about to back up. The truck's driver continued to go in reverse and hit the front of the shuttle. Police cited the driver for illegal backing. Oh, yeah. Illegal backing. By the way, I illegally backed into a car here. You did. Not to brag. (gasps) I... Why would you brag about that? I'm not bragging. I'm just stating a fact. The shuttle, which has room for 11 passengers and covers a half-mile loop in the Fremont East neighborhood, will remain in operation. So they have a driverless shuttle in Vegas if you want to go ride it. And it gets ran into by delivery trucks. Well, I'll run into you here in Utah. You don't need to go to Vegas to get run into. Do you remember uh, the name Sean Parker? Wasn't he Spider-Man's brother? No, no, no. Sean... Diddy Puffy Parker? Sean Puff Diddy Don Diddy Don Parker? In other news, uh, Puff did not change his name. That was something he was just messing around with on Twitter. That was a good joke. He faked us out. We thought for sure he was changing his name to... Well, it worked. We talked about it on the radio. Mm Mm-hmm. So Sean Parker is this listed as an American entrepreneur... Okay. ...philanthropist who founded the file-sharing computer service Napster... Oh yeah, Drummer Napster. Right. He got where in I may, trouble. I may or may not have collected most of a uh, music collection. I may or may not still have. Not right. even sure anymore. I think you're still within the statute of limitations. I'm just saying, on may that. or may not. I don't know. I may or may not have been kicked off the service by Metallica and then found a way within five seconds to get by whatever computer hack they did to get back on the service. That may or may not have happened. Well, I'm Sorry. I'm guessing the way you said that that it did. I said may or may not. Okay. Uh, so Sean Parker, he was also the founding president of Facebook. He was involved in Facebook. Yeah, I right? did not know that. Okay. So he was at a press conference a meeting yesterday. Mm-hmm. He was doing a, a, a speech based. Nah, he was more of an interview, I think. But the social media platform functions, he says, by exploiting a vulnerability in human psychology. At an event in Philadelphia Wednesday night, the erstwhile 38-year-old Napster inventor told Axios, it probably interferes with the productivity in weird ways. God only knows what it's doing to our children's brains. Parker said he now understands that a site as popular as Facebook literally changes your relationship with society and with each other. The thought process that went into building these applications, Facebook being the first of them, was all about how do we consume as much of your time and conscious attention as possible. So And so they've maximized that. So he's calling out Facebook as intentionally using psychology to trap you. Yes. Well not just not just Facebook, but every social media out there, Instagram, That's Twitter, not... they're all trying to maximize your conscious attention and they're trying to make you want to interact in this way. So is this one of is this one of the first insiders saying this? Um, no, there's been se- well, there's been several books written. Yeah, where these where they're they're basically showing you how people make these apps addictive. Yeah, how they set them up, use of color, use of 
when you you can tap the little heart and there's a little animation that pops up. I, you just like that. It's like, ooh, that's kind of fun. It's yeah. kind of a reward for you. And mm-hmm. you get that dopamine bing, hit. Bing, bing. And that's these little little tricks that they use to make it more addictive. Interesting fact. Yes. Sean Parker was portrayed in the movie uh, The Social Network by Justin Timberlake. Really? That makes sense. He's just doing this because our consultant likes Justin Timberlake. Well, who doesn't? I, you know what I like about Justin Timberlake is his really tight relationship with Jimmy Fallon. Really? Their bromance. I feel like it's a very strong relationship. Will he be on the Super Bowl halftime? Yes. Why wouldn't you bring Jimmy Fallon in to do a little bit with you? And as long as it's not Janet Jackson, everyone will be fine. So the end of that story is that social media is evil and it's tearing us apart and we have no idea what it's doing to our kids. But hey, it's fun. You know what I've noticed about it is it sure keeps my kids quiet. When they're in that kind of numb, dazed state, kind of mid-drool, yeah. they, I don't hear much Mid, from them. Mid-drool, huh? Mm-hmm. You know who else uh, Justin Timberlake is, I've heard, is tight with? Who? Uh, Jessica Biel. There might be something going on there. Really? Timberbill. Like marriage? Timberblake. Yeah, they're married. No. Are they married? Mm-hmm. I did not know that. See, uh, you didn't know that? No, I mean, I no. Wow. You didn't see the social media? No. See, you guys, this weird <sighs> thing. I have a life, and I wanted to talk to you two about getting one. Because if I can get you two in my life underneath me, and then you two could go get people underneath you to get lives, then we could build this network um, of people with lives. Is this an MLM? Mm-hmm. Hmm. And it's very simple. Huh. All you need to do is download my app, and then you get three friends to download the app, and then give up all your other stuff, and then give your life to my app, and what? then get people to give their lives to your version of my app. Will we make any money that way? Yes. Eventually, uh-huh. or within... It sounds like a lot of work. It's a lot less than you think. Really? Do you know it's a lot less than I think? What? Nothing. Trying to do the math on that. See if that divided by two equals zero. Okay. See? That makes sense. There you go. So I'm starting this direct, I don't like to call it a multi level marketing opportunity. I like to call it a direct sell. Pyramid scheme? No, 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 no. I think it's called a mlm. Mlm. Does it involve any essential oils? No, but what it involves is changing lives. And what we're going to do is we're going to get everybody off of their technology. Okay. Then we're going to put you in a drum circle. Mm. And we're going to drum and talk and connect. What's the drums for? Just critical vibe. Huh. Bum, bum, bum. It's kind of like this music. Just have this playing in the background? Mm-hmm. Our elevator our But elevator everybody music. could have a little drum and then we just get everyone to get a life. That way, Mr. Parker, we mm. don't have to worry about how social media is ruining death. us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But let's keep Netflix. You like that? Well, or I'm not going to brand Netflix on the show. So let's just let's keep Black Blix, Black Blix, and Blamadon Blime. Okay. What about Blue Lou? Blue Lou, I don't have. <laughs> I don't have Blue Lou. Apparently, not many other people do. No, also, but I watched every show growing up, so I pretty much know. Yeah, you're covered. Uh, 
<laughs> hey, uh, crazy news uh, headlines about police being over overwhelmed with some repetitive um, – what do they call it? Call. Everybody's calling in about this one issue and it's it's really messing up police forces around the country. Yeah, and it's caused a, a new ordinance to come out. And then I'm going to talk to you about something more on a local level having to do with this. Okay. So there are new leaf blower restrictions. We were talking about yeah. leaf blowers earlier. I mean it may have cost uh, Rand Paul six ribs. That's true. So this is in Newton, uh, Massachusetts. Police have received hundreds of complaints from residents. The flood of uh, leaf blower related calls has forced the department to adjust how officers respond. Uh, concerned the contentious issue is putting a strain on their resources. Mm. So Karen Bray, she's a leader of the group that uh, Newton Citizens Against Leaf Blower Mania, <laughs> NCALBM. And scalp. Yeah. So it advocates strongly for restrictions that took effect in April. The ordinance now prohibits the use of gas-powered blowers from Memorial Day to Labor Day. Oh, wow. It also requires a 65-decibel noise limit Mm -hmm. on leaf blowers all year. Uh, Let's see. Uh, What's going on here? So the, the Newton regulations passed after an extremely heated debate at City Hall. Oh, boy. Where half the people were showing up with their leaf blowers. Mm -hmm. You couldn't hear anything they were saying. Mm -hmm. Pitting landscaping companies against residents, decrying the noise, uh, health, and environmental effects of leaf blowers. But safe to say the police department did not expect this. Since the regulations took effect in April, police had responded to about 320 leaf blower complaints through the beginning of October. That is a lot of hot air. Uh, A list of incidents shows some people called to complain about leaf blowers. But the noise turned out to be lawnmowers, ah, weed whackers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know what we should have done? What? We should have should have gotten these different sounds and see. we should have seen if you could have deciphered. I can decipher them. You can? Yeah. What about a crew moving a tree? Oh, yeah. Workers paving a driveway? Uh-huh. Okay. Been there. So it's that. interesting. My wife was telling me that on a, locally here, apparently the city of Orem had to come out with – a letter to the residents of Orem informing them that uh, they shouldn't blow the leaves into the street. Yeah. You would think that that's common knowledge or just human decency. Everything flows to the lake. Well, and then, you know, they'll do it because they'll they'll hope that the street sweepers Mm -hmm. will just clean it all up. And I don't even think I've seen a street sweeper in Orem. No, but I, I saw two chimney sweepers on the way in today. And they were singing Chim Chimney Cheru, mm-hmm. I think. This guy, I think they're trying to get leaves out of this. And speaking with a horrible <laughs> British accent. Lots of Brits here looking for work. Uh, but see, you probably don't remember this, but back in the old day, we used to have this instrument called a rake. A rake? A rake. And you hmm. would actually rake the leaves up into a pile. You'd jump in them. Then you'd realize that's not as fun as it looks. <laughs> and then you'd have to put them in bags. Yeah. And, and now we don't do that. Now apparently people just use their blowers to blow them everywhere. Why can't they just scatter them across the lawn and use it to get some kind of a mulch going on? You know what I like to do? Hmm. Uh, we don't have fences around our property because we like the wind to blow everything out of our yard into our neighbor's yard who okay. has a fence on one side. Sure. And then what's so great is then they get to deal with the leaves. Then it's kind of the neighborhood leaf 
you know, receptacle. Yeah. Well, apparently, you know, 320 people can't decipher, yeah. you know, they can't. It's hard. They don't know what a crew moving a tree sounds like or lawnmowers. They think it's all leaf blowers. Those leaf blowers, they get a bad rap. I know. Everything isn't a leaf blower, folks. Sometimes it's just, you know, Aunt Bridget. At Thanksgiving dinner. Oh, <laughs> yeah. She just keeps blowing in the wind. Hey, uh, in fact, up next, we're going to be talking about why there, there may be some data out there that uh, there's a particular area where women may be smarter than men. And uh, we'll be revisiting an interview about that. Uh, again, it's bringing up a topic that Terry loves emotional intelligence. Straight ahead, this is The Matt Townsend Show. It's been a long debate on recess playgrounds, uh, at recess and everywhere. Who is smarter, boys or girls? Well, this recent study suggests that maybe we have some data to support an answer to the question. And the answer is girls, when it comes to emotional intelligence anyway. A few months ago, I spoke with Travis Bradbury, co-founder of the world's leading provider of emotional intelligence tests. Talent Smart's the name of the company. We discussed a study he conducted that tells us about uh, emotional what emotional intelligence is and how men and women's scores differed. I began the interview by asking about the study and the results that showed that women may be smarter than men when it comes to EI. Emotional intelligence is a unique skill set. And the first thing you need to understand to understand how, what, what exactly emotional intelligence is, is you need to understand how our brains are wired. Um, everything that we experience is, is really generates an emotional response. So we're hardwired have an emotional reaction to events before we're able to think rationally about them. And emotional intelligence is how well you understand your emotions, how aware you are of them, how, how well you manage them and respond to them, and also how aware you are of emotions in other people, whether or not you're aware of you know, what the world looks like through their eyes, what they're trying to communicate, and, and how well you use that information to manage your relationships. Hmm. So it really is... It's 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 the emotional component, and like you say, we're we're all wired to have some emotional, you know, uh, response to everything we do. It's the emotion that tells us like what to do, when to do it, how fast to do it, right? Right, and and you know the way our brains are set up, the the the, the very basic center of the brain is where emotions are generated. The limbic system um, ensures that as signals travel across the brain, the emotional reaction happens first. The, the rational thought doesn't happen until it reaches, you know, the far reaches of the brain, these areas that develop much later. And so the emotions are already driving the bus before you, you really get a chance to start, start thinking about them and hopefully becoming aware of them. Hmm. Um, unfortunately, we find that most people are not. My company has tested more than a million people now, and we find that just 36% of people are able to accurately identify their emotions as they happen. Really? Is, and it's, it's something we can do. We can understand it. It's just are we just not skilled or trained in it because isn't that one of the points of emotional intelligence is this is something you can improve. Absolutely. We, we live in a world that just doesn't always know what's best for us, doesn't equip us to understand our emotions. You know, we, we, our society tends to teach us to stuff our feelings and, 
and, and, and just try to pretend they're not there. And that's a really ineffective way to go about it because you can't turn your emotions off. They're going to happen whether you like it or not. And the beauty of the emotional intelligence skill is the, the pathway between your reason and your feelings is very flexible and adaptive to change. So as people work to develop their emotional intelligence, they actually change their brain. And, and it's, it's a, a skill that, unlike your IQ, um, you can actually increase your level of emotional intelligence. Hmm. And so when you say women um, are smarter in emotional intelligence, because there's like four or five measures that you, that you use, I assume, uh, the self-awareness kind of idea, self-management, social awareness, relationship management. Are, are women ahead in all of those categories? Or maybe walk us through and let us know where, are, where do women have an advantage, where do men have an advantage? Sure. The, the four skills that you mentioned are the four components of emotional intelligence. And we've given the, the test that comes with my book, Emotional Intelligence 2.0, is something you take online. So beyond all the R&D we did to develop that test, you know, we've sold more than a million books now, so we have data on just a, a huge, huge sample of people. And we find that women outscore men on average by a couple of points in overall EQ. That gap isn't, isn't huge, but when you look at the four individual skills, the, the picture really starts to come to life as to what the unique strengths and weaknesses are of, of men and women. So the first skill is self-awareness, and that's how aware you are of your emotions, how well you understand them. And we actually find that the, the men and women score identically in mm. self-awareness. And this is an interesting one because the, the cop-out that you usually hear from men uh, when it comes to emotions is, you know, I don't... You know, I don't, I don't understand that stuff, or I don't think about that, or that doesn't pertain to me. And, and we actually find that isn't the case, that men are just aware of their emotions as, as women. Um, the difference you start to see is in what people do with those emotions. Mm. So when it comes to self-management and the ability to, to manage your emotions, we actually find that men outscore women by a small margin. Men outscore women in the ability to manage their emotion? Your awareness equips you to manage your emotions. Hmm. And, you know, why men would have more effective coping mechanisms in managing emotions, I, I, I don't have an answer to that. But we do find that they outscore women by a little bit. The biggest gap we find is on the social side of things. So social awareness is how perceptive you are at understanding the emotions and the experience of other people. And there we find that women outscore men by a large margin. Hmm. Um, the theory here is that, you know, women growing up are socialized to be more nurturing and caring, um, attuned to other people than men are. So it's, it's a skill that they are sort of equipped with growing up. The trick is, you know, in life and, and particularly in the workplace where we've done a lot of research linking these skills to job performance, um, particularly for leaders, Social awareness is a skill that you really, really want to have. So that's a deficit that men should um, be eager to improve. Hmm. Which might be why I hear a lot of, in my coaching work, I hear a lot of wives that are really mad about how their husband, they're so harsh with the kids. Why are you so, they're really like sensitive, it seems like, to how hard the guy is coming down on the child. And I wonder if that's not because they're picking up other cues. They're picking up more social cues. Well, and, and it's, it's likely that, and it's also probably a combination of, um, 
you know, if the men are too, being too harsh, they don't have the same level of social awareness of how what they're doing impacts right, the kid. Right, right. You know, and, and what, it, what it looks like from their perspective. When I give talks, I, I show this great clip from The Pursuit of Happiness where Will Smith has finally taken his son out to play a little basketball. Um, you know, they never get to spend time together, and, and he, he kind of throws the weight of the world on his son's shoulders because he wants to be a basketball player. And, um, you know, most parents would treat that like a tantrum when the kid reacts. But the beauty of that clip is he recognizes that he's kind of ruining the one little bit of fun they, they get to have together. So mm. those, in those moments, social awareness can really equip you to kind of see, see things from the other person's perspective, which then helps you understand what you're bringing to the table sure. and, and how you affected that. Which is why it is such a great leadership skill. And then the last one is relationship management. Who has the, advantagement, or the advantage there? Yeah, so we, we find that, that women outscore men in relationship management. It isn't a huge margin. It's, it's similar to the gap um, through which men outscore women in self-management. And this, again, you know, relationship management, it, it, it depends a lot on what you do, but it really hinges on your awareness of other people. Hmm. So it's hard to change your behavior in the moment to react and treat people differently if you don't understand what's going on with them. So I think that women's social awareness really gives them the upper hand when it comes to managing relationships more effectively. So it's fascinating. Uh, self-awareness, men and women pretty equal. Self-management, men tend to outscore women there by a bit. Uh, social awareness, women tend to have an advantage. Relationship management, about the same score as self-management for the men. It, it, tell us what this all means. What, how, does, how do these differences get acted out in our relationships and our social engagement? Well, you know, it, it's interesting because any one individual can, can buck these trends, but you need to understand as a society how men and women problem-solve around emotions. And I just find that a lot of people have ideas around, they create limitations around what they can do with their emotions based on their gender. Mm. And that, that really isn't the case. I think that this data shows that despite the fact that women are outscoring men, I mean, most of these are very small margins. And the fact that the genders are equal in self-awareness, to me, says a lot. Right. It says that, you know, we, we both understand emotions equally, which means we can both use them equally. It's just a matter of perspective and effort. Is it, um, as you see this, it's got to be impacting a lot of uh, men as more and more women are coming into the workplace and they're bringing these really powerful social skills. Is it, how is it affecting the work environment? Well, we find that um, emotional intelligence explains about 60% of how people do in the workplace. That's how much of your job performance that it accounts for because it's really measuring everything outside of, you know, your intellect and your industry experience and these sort of core skills that, that you can't change. The trick is those are all threshold levels of competence. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if, if you're working in a middle management position, all the middle managers have a similar IQ and similar experience. You're all there because of that. What, or, or as a leader as well, what differentiates you is your level of emotional intelligence, this skill that actually explains the majority of your job performance. So um, that's why we find that 90% of top performers are, are high in emotional intelligence. It's, it's really something that can set you apart yeah. in the workplace. Overall, do you sense that are we becoming, uh, tra uh, Travis, are we becoming more 
emotionally intelligent as a as a humanity, just as we've been studying it more and teaching it more over the last thirty years or so. Yes, we have seen some improvement in in overall emotional intelligence scores, and you can definitely see the level of discussion of emotional intelligence, the the, the awareness in popular society is is increasing every year. Um, you know, when the Eagles fired their coach last year, they said they wanted to. They, they, the, that it was because they're looking for someone who had uh, more emotional intelligence. Hmm. And you just start to see this time and time again where people recognize that this is a critical skill for leaders to possess, and it's, it's certainly becoming more mainstream. A lot of employers are looking for the skill in their hiring as well. It's, uh, as I was used to be in the industry, a lot of this emotional intelligence stuff was seen or called a soft skill. It's kind of the human skills. Um, and, and then some companies would rather get into the systems and the structure and processes. And um, But the reality is, it's, it seems to me, even if you have a great system, you still have humans involved in it. So the better you can understand yourself and others, the better the systems can be. Yeah, and, 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 and it's really interesting, you know, when people talk about emotional intelligence being a, a soft skill. I mean, in a lot of ways it is because it's a flexible skill. Um, you know, IQ isn't what you know. It's the pace, as you mentioned, through which you assimilate new information, yeah. how, how, how quickly you absorb information. Well, they've done longitudinal studies where they've followed people from age 5 to age 50, and IQs measured relative to your peers, and they see that your IQ scores don't change. They're locked in at age 5. Um, personality is another fixed characteristic that organizations like to look at, and, and people often confuse this with emotional intelligence, but personalities are these stable set of preferences and tendencies through which you approach the world. So if you're hopelessly extroverted, you're always going to be that way. If you're hopelessly introverted, you know, people are going to, uh, being around people is going to drain your energy. It's going to be difficult. Well, this is fixed in your late, you know, you see it in children, and it's just that area of the brain becomes fixed by late teens, early 20s. So many of our characteristics are not soft. They're fixed. There's absolutely nothing you can do right. about them. And that's the beauty of emotional intelligence is it's a soft, malleable skill. Is, is there a correlation then, I'm assuming there would be, between EQ and happiness? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's, there's, there's a big connection because, you know, a lot of what people talk about um, in the happiness research and also in um, success research is having a growth mindset. Um, Carol Dweck's done a lot of research there, and this idea is that if, if you approach um, trials and tribulations with, um, with tolerance and you look for opportunity and rather than sort of allowing them to, to beat you down and make you give up, you tend to be a lot happier and you tend to be a lot uh, more successful. Well, it's really hard to have a growth mindset unless you have emotional intelligence. Unless you're able to channel your emotions into producing the behavior that you want, as opposed to letting them drive the bus, mm. is is there are there some people that I mean I've watched TV enough to know I've watched the cops show quite a bit um, to know that it seems like there's some people that just really struggle with like self control, self management. Are are some people incapable for some reason physiologically, chemically, psychologically to actually manage their own emotion? You know, if there's there's certain um disabilities 
that put you very, very far off on the spectrum that, that can make it really difficult to control your emotions. Um, autism spectrum disorders is a, a good example of that. The, the limbic system where emotions are, are generated is actually grossly underdeveloped in people that have autism. Now, the interesting thing about coughs is a lot of the people that you see are, are having uh, what we call an emotional hijacking where your emotions have completely taken over They're your flooded. behavior. Yeah. And there's a sequence of events that have put themselves there. And average uh, individuals who have low, you know, you or I who have low EQ moments uh, during the day, we do the exact same thing to ourselves. It's, it's rare that something out of the blue produce this emotional hijacking, and that's the tendency mm. we have to do. We tend to blame it on that. But if you look at the sequence of events that, that led up to you being chased by a police dog, <laughs> you know, it started with, um, you, you know, maybe for the, for the guy on cops, you know, a fight with your wife, and then you went out and had too much to drink right. and fell off the wagon, and, you know, it's, it's these choices the spiral. you make. And, and, but, then, and, like, but then you get flooded is what you're saying. You get flooded by the chemistry, and then the chemistry tends to run you. Absolutely, because there are situations that make our emotions come on really, really strong. And it's very hard to turn off an emotional hijacking. What emotionally intelligent people do is they recognize the situations that are starting to take them down that path, and they have tools to redirect, mm. calm themselves down, to remove them from those situations before they get in a place where they're out of control and they do something they regret. Love it. Um, is, as we wrap up, and as a dad, what would you say is the one thing I could do today and consistently with my children, my family, to, to help us all become more aware of emotional intelligence? You know, the, the toughest thing for parents, because this creates this constant level of accountability, but that's what we have, is, is modeling. And the fact of the matter is kids are absorbing what we do like a sponge, and they're modeling themselves off of us as parents. So when it comes to emotions... You want to be a model, not just of, you don't have to have a perfect reaction to your emotions because no, no one does and, and your children don't need to you know, be these pillars of emotional intelligence, but they need to understand their emotions. And that's something that you can really model is processing emotions, talking about them. Um, even, even if you have a, a low EQ moment and you overreact to something, just, just explaining to them what happened. And, mm. and, and that's a really, really big thing is, is to let children become aware of emotions and learn how to discuss them. That's powerful. And let them, yeah, let them see that, you know, we can change and we can acknowledge it and it's not necessarily fixed in who we are. Um, wonderful stuff. Dr. Travis Bradbury, thank you so much for being with us and uh, highly suggest to everybody, go check out the website, talentsmart.com. Wonderful resources, tools there, also information about where you can get the book, Emotional Intelligence 2.0. Let's start working on it all together now. Managing emotion might uh, be able to change even how you see the world. Wouldn't that be great? We'll take a break, come back, visit our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation, find out what's going to be up on their show at the top of the hour. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You can't stop the feeling. You just you just dance, dance, dance. Who better to go uh, to go see dancing than these two guys, Spencer and Jerem from BYU Sports Nation? Hello, gentlemen. How did you know Hello, that we were dancing? Because that's what it's I hard not to with that song. That's what you're always doing. And 
How did I know you both looked like trolls today? Excuse me. Like Twitter trolls or actual trolls? Actual trolls. Oh. Dancing to the song. Oh, very different. Mm-hmm. Uh... Hey, um, you, you guys, I, I've, I've kind of missed you. Why is why, that, what's, Why? What's going on? I just feel like we haven't hung out lately. <laughs> well, let's hang out, man. We generally don't interact in person. I mean... Um, I mean, See but, you in the parking lot occasionally. But sometimes that's you know that was a that was a legal issue. But I think we we cleared it up, right? So we're yeah, we're good. I, listen, insurance is going to take care of it. It's going to be okay. It'll be fine. And it wasn't even Spencer doesn't even know. I know. I didn't even mean to scratch his car. It's yeah. Well, anyway, now he does. Yeah, hey, uh, listen. First world problem. Totally first world problem. You Better guys than scratching your face. You guys, I I was uh, reading the paper yesterday, and I found out. That Wait, you, what? Were whoa, read, whoa, whoa, you were reading? You were reading the paper? Uh-huh, the paper? Uh huh. Yeah, I was I was wearing my sweater, in my sweater vest, in my office, and reading my newspaper. Which yes, I, June, will you please bring me the paper? As I'm as I'm uh, uh, warming myself <laughs> with my um, postum. <laughs> And okay. Having, I'm having quite a moment. And then I'm reading an article about Bronco Mendenhall. Yeah. That yep. was a really interesting interview. Did you Have guys you listen to it, Jerem? No, it, but I got the gist. It'll yeah. ch- but Someone uh, summarized it for me. A couple things came out. Uh, he swore and people freaked out. Yep. But, a football coach swore? Yeah. Are you serious? But oh, my goodness. It's funny. He said... <laughs> I am admitting openly that I did it so that I can get going with the repentance process. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's He's, know your audience there. That's totally know your audience. Well played, Bronco. But he also said, he, he also said and I quote, uh, I don't think anybody can imagine what a weekend is like when you don't win in Provo as the head coach. He said, I'm talking about Sunday included uh, for the players also. There's really high expectations, and there should be. Uh, as everyone that's associated worldwide with BYU football and the LDS faith, but he would go to church, and at church, everybody's basically critiquing him. Yeah. He's way happier oh, he, in Charlottesville. Don't you think? He looks like a kid in a candy well, he store. He makes three times as much money as well. That that's a huge part of it, but he loves— renting happiness. He loves to not be kind of cornered yeah. at all. And with BYU— in the unique spotlight that it is with its ties to faith and the school. and It's tough. It's, it's a tough situation to be the BYU head coach. So you can imagine what Kalani Sitake feels like right oh. now. Like if anybody oh. understands what he's going through. I wonder if they talk. Bronco. Do they talk? Are they friends? I don't, I don't, I don't think th- they talk. I don't think so. I don't okay. think they talk. But, he, but Bronco last year had like a 2-10 and ten year. Yes, but he kind of was— that was the standard. He was he was given some time yeah. to do it, and he admitted during the interview, like I, the situation was more dire than I imagined it would be when I took over. Hmm. But here we are, six and three. They're going to a bowl game for the first time in that six cool. years. That's cool. And I used to work with a weather guy who's a big booster for UVA. Yeah, in Palm U- Springs. Uva. His name's Patrick Evans. Yeah, and. Uh, I told Patrick, I'm like, hey, he'll he'll be the guy that'll win you seven or eight games a year at, at some point. He'll get there. And he said, if he wins consistently seven to eight games a year. In the ACC. And does it for like five years in a row, I'm not kidding. They will erect a statue of him outside <laughs> of Scott Stadium. the standard is at Virginia. <laughs> That's great, though. They've had two 10-plus winning, 10-win uh, seasons in their All time. history. Oh. Woof. You know. That's why he he went there. That's smart. They were going to pay him. 
Paying big you know, money. Like two or three times as much. And, and he wanted he the challenge. He didn't have to do as much. And he he's wanted in, the challenge. He yeah. said, he's like, I wanted to resurrect a program. And they have those beautiful. As he did at Brigham. They have those yes. beautiful pastures where he can run horses. His wife is happy. Life is good. Yeah, dude. But he still swears. <laughs> I love him. I miss I got him. got news he, for you, yeah. uh, Matt. <laughs> that that happened to BYU too. Yeah. Oh, I know it. I'm sure it did. I'm sure it even happens down at BYU Sports Nation. No. Um, talk to us about what's on your show today. No. Come on. It's the, it's the projection project today, Matt. Oh, is that it? Uh-huh. We, uh huh. We we made projections for BYU basketball, and we've also done that for BYU football. Uh-oh. Now we we went on record with this before the season started with football, and we'll do so with basketball. I can't wait to rehash our projections for this uh, season's football. Oh, it'll be fun to see. Are you That's even gonna close? That's going to be super awesome. Yeah. I think I'm going to be sick that day. <laughs> mm-hmm. We're going to talk about BYU's uh, win last night in their final exhibition, yes. getting ready for the season opener yeah. Saturday. Cool, cool. One of the captains, newly uh, christened captains, Luke Worthington, will join us. Uh, we'll ask him if BYU's ready to play. Start the season Saturday. Right now? Of course they're ready to play. Come on. Have June, ch- have you seen the comic section today? <laughs> I need it now. <laughs> and I want my postums. <laughs> my postums getting cold. The football postgame show yeah. on BYU Radio is brought to you by Postum. Fido has taken fun, my slippers again. Fun fact. No, is it really? I'm, it, I'm not kidding. I saw somebody drinking Postum in the stadium, and I'm like, what? Really? Is wow, that back? Right. There's a postum stand. Mm-hmm. Okay. Post them if you got them. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's what they used to say. Okay. <laughs> Anything else on the show, gentlemen? Nope. Just that we love you. We love you, and we will launch you effectively into the ether sphere now. They are launched. Ah, there they go. Two of the finest gentlemen you'll ever meet. Really. Jeff looked at me like, huh? What? 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 What about me? No, you, you're, you, you too would be one of the finest. Hmm. To the finest gentlemen. I've been watching a lot of um, uh, shows. I don't even know what you call them. About uh, ancient civilizations. Documentaries? Mm, eh. Historical. Historical. Uh, capturings? Mm-hmm. Is that what we're calling them? <laughs> And so I'm, I'm starting to recognize that I may have been a Viking. I have a lot of connection to Scandinavia. Is this a way of, dis- of saying what the show is without saying what no, it is? No, no, no. Okay. But I have this blood in me. I, th- I feel like I'm a conqueror. Hmm. I like to conquer. Let's just say one of those <laughs> two words, Vikings or conqueror, is the name of the show. No, no. Yes, no, I'm yes. I'm not talking code. I'm just saying I feel – I love learning about cultures that I had ancestors in because then I can take on those personalities or the my interpretation of those personalities in modern day in Utah. You're wrong. OK. Hey, a hero story for you. Uh, as you know, we always like to have one to motivate you, give you a little leg up before we leave. Alabama woodcutter Eric Gilbray, 37, drove two hours and searched a woodland area in the middle of the night to find Serenity Dawn Sander, who's three years old, who had gone missing in the woods behind her parents' house. Serenity Dawn Sanders was reported missing in the woods uh, near DeKalb County uh, Thursday around 730. Eric Gilbreth, whose son Eric Jr. and Serenity share the same mother, 
Got a call about the girl's disappearance around 1 a.m. on Friday. Your heart falls to the floor. My first thought was helping, getting out there and looking, Gilbreth said. I knew I couldn't just sit here in Coleman uh, knowing that my son's little sister was out there. So he uh, got in his truck, drove uh, the distance, and after getting $100 from a kind friend for gas, an emergency spare tire two hours from his home, uh, Coleman started looking and eventually actually found Serenity. He said, your heart falls to the floor, but uh, boy, when you can uh, save a child and bring uh, a family back together, it's all worth it. So Eric Gilbreth. You are the hero of the day on the Matt Townsend Show. And that is our program. We'll be back again tomorrow. But uh, up next, BYU Sports Nation.